VOCM presents Open Line. The opinions expressed on this show are not necessarily those of the station. And now your host, Patty Daly. Well, all right, and good morning to you. Thank you so much for tuning into the program. It's Thursday, November the 16th. This is Open Line. I'm your host, Patty Daly, and David Williams. You know it. He's produced the program. You'll be speaking with David when you pick up the phone to give us a call and in the queue and on the air. If you're in the St. John's metro region, the number to dial, 709-273-5211. Elsewhere, toll-free, long-distance, 1-888-590-VOCM, which is 8626. Well, I had heard this story through my social circles about a rec hockey player who hit the ice in full cardiac arrest a couple of weeks ago at the Edmonds Arena. I didn't know who it was until I read the story this morning. So it's a fellow named Colin Sullivan, who I know who he is. He's a big, rugged hockey player. He's a tax lawyer. He uh, was feeling ill. He'd already been identified with some potential heart issues, which were being treated by medication. But lo and behold, during his weekly rec hockey skate, down he goes. Thankfully, the players on the ice knew what to do. So they performed CPR, and then they went to get the defibrillator, the AED, the Automated External Defibrillator. It gave a shock to his heart, revived him, and he's around to tell the story. He's the father of four. I guess Terry Roberts from CBC caught up with him up at Edmonds Arena when he was watching one of his children uh, doing some power skating. So it just goes to show the need for people to understand some first aid, CPR. Those AEDs save lives. Now, not everyone is as lucky as Colin Skinner, or Colin Sullivan, pardon me. So apparently, uh, outside of a hospital, it happens about every 15 minutes in Canada. The result is the death of about 90% of those instances. So these are stats coming from the Heart and Stroke Foundation of Canada. So I imagine that Mr. Sullivan, with a second lease on life and the good folks around him who knew what to do and sprung into action right away. So let's make sure these AEDs, and whether it be rec hockey or anything else where people are exerting themselves, know how to use them. They're not complicated at all. And in this case, whoever performed CPR and brought that shock to the man's heart, Colin Sullivan is around to tell the tale. Amazing story. Great stuff. A couple of weeks ago, we talked about, well, I guess the world was uh, aware of the fact that a hockey player, former NHLer in the Pittsburgh Penguin uh, franchise, Adam Johnson, he took a, a skate to the neck and consequently bled out and died. So it sprung to more conversation regarding protective equipment, cut-resistant socks and maybe wrist guards and neck guards, and you're seeing more and more of them now, even worn by NHL hockey players. But now there's been a charge, a suspicion of manslaughter laid. So against a Sheffield Steelers defenseman named Matt Petgrave, there's a lot swirling around that story, but now there's been an actual charge of a suspicion of manslaughter in that case. Amazing stuff. We'll see where it goes. I want to say good morning, good luck to everyone participating in the Canadian University Championships in men's rugby. So the Memorial Seahawks, who swept through the Atlantic Championships, I mean, demolished everybody, never gave up a single point. They're one of the eight teams competing at the championships. You can watch all those games streamed live on the Rugby Network site. Today, they line up against the Quebec champs, the, uh, pardon me, the Quebec champions, Ottawa University, at 3.30 our time. So they call it the Quebec champs because all those schools play in the one conference. Okay. Let's get into some industry notes. So yesterday, an announcement regarding funding for the fishery and the aquaculture industry. $25 million uh, spread over some 147 different projects. It's all about modernizing equipment, improve the quality of the product, productivity, sustainability, all the rest. Inside the 147, 116 of the projects are inside the harvesting industry, 22 in processing, and five projects in aquaculture, basically moving towards the development of the oyster aquaculture industry and, of course, salmon. Four of the projects will support indigenous partnerships. Okay. 
So obviously the need to improve gear is all very real to modernize the systems to make sure that the quality of the product is attractive to the market. Let's now bring you back to October 29th of 2013. So that 25 million comes from a $400 million pot to be spent over the course of seven years. October 29th, 2013, many of you will remember this. Then Premier Kathy Dunderdale had a big, glitzy, glossy press conference at the rooms to announce $400 million for the Newfoundland and Labrador fishery alone. Not the Atlantic Fishery Fund, but for this province. There was a couple of moving parts in play. So the country was signing on to a free trade agreement with the European Union, right? Canada's Comprehensive Economic Trade Agreement, CETA. So concessions were made by this province, giving up minimum processing requirements, the NPRs. As a result, there would be the quickening to uh, remove tariffs for the importation of our seafood products into the European Union. That $400 million, that never happened. If I remember correctly, it was because the federal government at the time said, well, there hadn't been a careful analysis done of exactly what the value loss will be with the removal of the minimum processing requirements. At the time, there was already plenty of exemptions being offered to the processing sector to not have to live up to the minimum processing requirements. So that $400 million didn't happen, but this $400 million spread out throughout Atlantic Canada, now also to include the aquaculture industry. Inside of that pot of money, it's $3.2 million for cold storage storage infrastructure at Gander International Airport. Big win for the processing sector. It was back in 2020 that there was $100,000 put forward for a feasibility study to be done whether or not cold storage would be appropriate and beneficial, whether it be at Gander International Airport or at Marine Atlantic out in Port of Basque. I guess the feasibility study proved that Gander was the chosen option, but you know, contrast 2013 to today, different set of circumstances. You want to take any of that on? Let's go. We'll also use 2013 when we talk about Kruger. So this is a potentially dangerous story. Kruger and Cornerbrook Pulp and Paper is the last remaining newsprint mill in the province. They employ some 300 people. It's been the linchpin of the West Coast and Cornerbrook uh, community, uh, pardon me, economy for a long, long time. Back in 2019, they shut down for a couple of weeks close to Christmas. At the time, they also cut 22 full-time jobs. Now they say two things. One is about the need for inspection and maintenance. Fair enough. That's obviously going to be part and parcel with operating a paper mill like this one. But then they talk about the market. We know that the thirst and the appetite for newsprint is not what it once was. The digital age has come fast and furious. We can only hope that there's going to be a future for Kruger and their 300 employees. The reason I mentioned 2013 associated with Kruger, it was back in that year when there was upwards of $110 million in fully repayable loan given to Kruger's operations. We understand some money's been repaid, and of course those jobs for the individuals and their families is probably much more important, but it will be curious to know exactly where we stand with that fully repayable loan of upwards of $110 million. 85 or 90 of it came immediately upon that year's budget. A lot to it, but we'll see where that goes. But that's a couple of distinct differences between 2013 and today. All right. People will also talk about government funding going towards things like establishing air routes from St. John's International to Europe. Haven't had one since 2019. All right. And you heard the story yesterday. And for many people, you know, you contrast how attractive this will be for folks who have the money to actually travel versus the other societal and economic pressures that so many people are facing. And we'll get into those again this morning. Of course we will. So with the WestJet flight, three times a week runs from May to October to London's Gatwick Airport. The price points are out there for everyone to consider. It goes from 393 to 747 until you add the other additional fees. The thought was, 
what does it take for St. John's International Airport Authority and or involvement with the government to attract someone like WestJet and or Air Canada or anybody else? It's kind of strange in some fashion that WestJet was the carrier that came back to town. It really felt like not that long ago that WestJet would dominate the West, Air Canada, the rest of the country. And of course, pepper in a few flights for both carriers and various big airports. So, I'm not 100% sure exactly what happened here, but the most recent provincial budget, there was $3.75 million that was spread around to all of the airports. Of course, not with a similar amount for each and every airport because of the uh, commercial passenger traffic. So, inside that 3.75, the Premier has said that the money was given to be spent at the discretion of the airport authorities. And obviously, in St. John's, this airport authority chose to spend some who knows how much, on attracting WestJet back. For many people, this is good news. It will see an uptick in travel from Europe, and hopefully that brings, you know, some out-of-province money. Nothing quite like that to give the kickstart or a little nudge ahead for provincial economy. And yes, it'd make it easier for people who want to travel across the pond, as they say. So... I see a lot of comments that this was direct from the province new money outside of the $3.75 million that was in the provincial budget. I don't think that's the case, but for many people, this would be a welcome travel option. Your thoughts? One second, sip of coffee. There is, I think, an additional conversation. Now, there are incentives in place for intra-provincial travel via air. People will also talk about, you know, $80 million for the intra-provincial ferry system and the cost recovery model that's not really that existent. So can more be done for traveling inside the province? Just think about it. If the fare to travel to Gatwick is between 393, 747 plus additional fees, but St. John's to Goose Bay or Wabush, what, $1,300? And that comes with you know a lot of restrictions for people who might be for medical care. It might be just to simply visit family. It might be just to see different parts of the province, to come to shop, to visit, to do who knows what. But to be able to travel to London for maybe somewhere in the neighborhood of half of what it costs to simply travel inside your own province, we can extend that conversation if you are so inclined. Now, there are incentives in play for intra-provincial travel, but I don't think they mimic the amount of money going for that WestJet flight. You want to take it on? All right. And then the societal issues. So we spoke with the province's seniors advocate, Susan Walsh. Was that yesterday, Dave? The days kind of blend together. Her most recent report is really eye-opening. I don't think it's really surprising because you and I hear the stories all the time about just how many people are struggling, including seniors. The most recent poverty reduction strategy was aimed at children and adults. We are told there's one coming for seniors. But I think it's worth reiterating some of the numbers that the advocate found and releasing the report that's called What Golden Years? Man, some sobering title. Five key focus areas, right? So food costs, home support, pension benefits, medical care costs, and monies to uh, prevent illness. We didn't have time to dig into exactly what that means with, the, uh, uh, with Susan Walsh because she was going to lose her cell coverage on her way to Buckins. But here are some of the high-level things once again. 32% of the respondents said they could not afford to meet their needs. 60% said they go without food. 57% said they cannot purchase medical supplies and devices. Nearly one-third of the people over 65 are struggling financially. 
So Tony Wakem, the leader of the opposition, the official opposition, says this should take some immediate reaction from the provincial government to adopt all of the recommendations. Some of the keys, of course, are you know uh, increasing the threshold for be able to get the maximum benefit inside the seniors' benefit, which is not huge money anyway. So for people who make less than twenty nine thousand four hundred and two dollars, the maximum benefit is fifteen hundred and sixteen dollars. There was a bump last year. There hadn't been a bump for the six years prior. So. You know, all of these thresholds are really, we're talking about minimal amounts of money. You know, for people who are making 50 grand, all of a sudden, the shopping is more stressful than it ever has been. You know, just trying to keep the wolf away from the door, to keep the bills from piling up too uh, high on your kitchen table. So those thresholds are really not capturing the numbers of people who legitimately need. Just think about it. You may say, well, we've got to stop spending money. If we have people who are hungry... What the, rea- the, rea- uh, pardon me, the relationship between hunger and un- unable to afford your medication and medical care and devices, that comes with a distinct cost on the other side. We never do that calculation or evaluation, simply how much money goes out. But if people who can't fill their uh, prescriptions and they're hungry and they're cold, what do you think is going to come as a cost? There's going to be a direct involvement with the healthcare system. The most expensive thing on the face of the earth or the face of the country anyway, so we can dig into some of those social issues. And on the world of the price of food and what have you, you know, there have been a lot of people, including the muckety-mucks who run these uh, grocery giants, but their profits are up. Yes, there's going to be slim margins in that business. It's all about quantity, but it's undeniable. We just now heard that Loblaws, who's of course the parent company of Shoppers Drug Mart and Dominion, profit increase of almost 12% for the third quarter of the year compared with the same quarter a year ago. Metro, uh, which is also one of the big five giants, their profits are up by 14%. So while their margins are tight in the grocery industry, and while Galen Weston will be uh, crying the blues when testifying in front of the uh, House Committee, the profits are up. So yes, we're paying the same amount or more for a product with less volume, right? The government is pretending that they have some sort of influence regarding stabilization of prices, which has never really truly worked. But, you know, if we can just want to label it pure corporate greed, whatever the case may be, they know. They see the stories. They read the report from Food Banks Canada. We understand how many millions of Canadians have to go to a food bank. People who used to be donors to food banks are now clients of food banks. And yet the profits continue to grow. How do you put any controls in place? People talk about windfall taxes, what have you. That has a problem potentially on the other side. Last time it was tried by the federal government to be fully intervening in the price of food, we saw shortages. So where the solution lies, I'm not sure. But for the grocery store executives and the lack of competition in that world, profits are up and way up. A 12% increase uh, year over year for the third quarter is significant. So while they tell us nothing can be done and we're doing everything we can and we understand our customers' plight and need and want, now, it is important to add, not all the profits in the big stores like Dominion, for instance, are all groceries. Lots of pharmaceuticals and clothes and other doodads and stuff. So, yeah, it's not all on groceries, but you and I see the prices. We know what we're doing. Okay, let's go. Inside the world of pharmaceuticals, it's remarkable to me. Last year in Canadian pharmacies, there was 3.5 million prescriptions filled for Ozempic a drug that was created to treat type 2 diabetes. Now it's been proven quite clearly to be very effective in the world of weight loss. 
on, side, on top of that, so the drug is, I guess when you boil it down to its actual name, it's a semi-glutide. There's lots of other drugs which are lycozempic. This one gets all of the attention because of the Hollywood relationship, and they call it the skinny jab. It's proven to work, but there's some warnings out there. There's a story in the UK where this lady bought one of these semi-glutides unregulated, unregulated source. It was a knockoff drug. The warnings are quite clear. Be very careful. If you can't get a prescription for Ozempic from your doctor and any of these other semi-glutides, be very wary of buying stuff online like that. This one lady ended up in the ER, right? Could have some very toxic ingredients. So the whole conversation regarding how people are using Ozempic and how trendy it is, is pretty remarkable stuff, but apparently it works. So you know people are going to go at it. A couple of quick ones before we get to you. All right, so you know we're on Twitter. Yeah, review him up online, follow us there. There's a new study that's come from the Canada Research Chair, Neuroscience and Learning Disorders at Western University and her team. This is about kids, screen time, and social media. They're actually using brain imaging. They're not just doing interviews and how do you feel and what do you do and how much time you spend on your screen. They're actually using brain imaging to look at what's happening inside the child's brain while they're using social media. Not video games, social media. So they say the issues regarding an imbalance and a depletion in serotonin on neurotransmitters like dopamine, all in play here. What the findings are, are clear. Social media can be very helpful. It can be a community. But of course, maybe more, more so now than ever, it can be a very angry place. A really extremely angry place. As a result, the uh, results of this research shows very clearly increasing high levels of depression, anxiety, and aggression. And the more time you spend on social media, the worse those three problems become. Not me saying it. These are actual scientists, academics. You know it to be true. I mean, if you scroll, people call it doom scrolling. It can be overwhelmingly angry. And then, of course, it's the mob mentality and the pile on digitally that leaves people feeling like there's nothing good to see when, in fact, there is. But, like, my timeline sometimes is an absolute nightmare. I try not to let it get to me, but like everybody else, you can only put up with so much. But for children, it's becoming a growing problem. We knew it to be true, but all of the anecdotal evidence is now being backed up by science and brain imaging. So I guess it's worth conversations when we watch our children's moods and attitudes and anxiety and depression and aggression grow. You know it goes from beyond when you're looking at your screen to how you behave in the community and with your friends and at school and everywhere else. So... That's worth reading, so if you want to take it on, you know what to do. A couple of better ones before we get to your call. Today is National Philanthropy Day. So we recognize people who are doing uh, a lot for their community, giving back to the community, individuals and businesses and what have you. Here's a talk about some of the winners that came from uh, a morning gathering at the Newfoundland Labrador chapter of the Association for uh, Fundraising Professionals. Okay. The winners, Outstanding Philanthropist Award, Corporate, Newfoundland Labrador Hydro. Outstanding Philanthropist Award Group, Animal House Grooming and Board out in Cornerbrook. Outstanding Philanthropist Award Individual, our very own Greg Smith. Congratulations, Greg. Bravo. Outstanding Fundraising Volunteer, Individual, Annette Bishop-Higdon and Jessica Van Busel. Outstanding Special Event, We Stand on Guard Again, Benefit Concert, of course, supporting the folks at Post-Tropical Storm Fiona. Rising Star, Lisa Nish with the Kids Eat Smart Foundation. And Outstanding Fundraising Executive, Carmela Butland, 
with the Janeway Foundation, National Philanthropy Day. And, of course, today is a one-night stand. 24-hour radiothon that we're doing right here on VOCM. Geraldine Mackey's at Daffodil Place. I guess we're in our third hour of 24. The carry costs are real. We know the financial benefit and they place the call a home away from home at Daffodil Place after your cancer diagnosis while you're receiving treatment and have to move into the city of St. John. So if you have the capacity, please do indeed dig deep and give to the folks. Uh, cover the cost of a one-night stand at Daffodil Place. We're on Twitter. Wherever you him up online, follow us there. Email address is openlineofvocium.com. When we come back, let's have a great show. Dave's going to kick it off to talk about the Western Memorial Hospital. And Paul's in the queue. He's a taxi driver. We had a couple of conversations yesterday about the taxi industry and the pending introduction of ride-sharing like Uber. That and more right after this. Don't go away. Welcome back to the show. Let's begin this morning on the top of the board, line number one. Good morning, Dave. You're on the air. Uh, Patty, thank you for taking my call. Patty, before I start, I'd like to, like to mention Sarah Strickland, who works for VOCM. She is from my town of Steamer Crossing. Patty, she is just awesome in giving out the news and weather. By the way, her father, Kevin, is a big Montreal fan like you and I. Her father, Kevin, was postmaster in Seymour Crossing before they moved to St. John's. And my wife worked 30-odd years in the post office before Kevin came there. Sarah's terrific. Uh, she's not only great at what she does here on air, but she's one of the biggest baseball fans I know, Blue Jays fan. Terrific. I Love know. talking to her. And she's a, she's a, her voice is wonderful, Patty, for a young girl. Fair enough. I'm sure she appreciates it. Yeah, and now, Patty, I'd like to start. I'm with the West Coast Health Action Committee in Stephenville. And you know, last Friday, November the 10th, the Premier and guests were invited to, to see that the construction of the hospital was done. But, Patty, not one committee member from Stephenville or Cornerbrook were invited to, to that opening. Not one. Only certain mayors, the mayor from Stephenville, Cornerbrook, and Deer Lake were invited. And, Patty, they even never invited Mr. Israel Ham from Cornerbrook, who was the one who started the committee in Cornerbrook back in 2007 to get a new hospital for Cornerbrook and the radiation unit for the West Coast. Mr. Ham is 90 years old now, Patty. They even left Mr. Ham out. Yeah, there's already been plenty of feedback aimed at the government about who and who was not invited to this uh, announcement. And, of course, remember that this is not about the completion. That We're months and months away from full completion. It's about what they're calling a substantial completion, the end of phase number one. There are some numbers to consider about this new hospital. So the old hospital, as it stands, has 217 beds. My understanding is the new hospital has 164 beds. Now, there is a pretty big long-term care facility also associated with that hospital and the construction, which I think is 100. 150 beds, if I'm not mistaken. So it's a little bit smaller, more services, and of course there had to be a replacement for servicing the, the West Coast of the province because the hospital in Cornerbrook has certainly uh, got past its uh, best before date. So I don't know who should or should not have been avoided, but certainly there's folks who had a lot of effort and energy and passion put into this that were left off the invitation roster, that's for sure. And Betty, and uh, I was talking to Gerald Parsons, he phoned me, he's the chair in there now, and the radiation unit is there, but n not a word on the PET scanner. Patty, a few years ago, we had a big rally at the Civic Center in Cornerbrook, and Mr. Dave Callahan, you know Dave, he gave us the buses free to go in there. And Jerry Brown, I think at the time, Mr. Coleman was going to run for the leader of the PC party, and Jerry Byrne, I don't think he... He, he ran afterwards for the Liberal. He even came over to our bus and thanked us 
for, you know, fighting for this new hospital. And he was there the other day. He never even mentioned our committees. And then in the House yesterday, Eddie Joyce got up and thanked their committee and Mr. Hand. And the member from Steamville never heard a word from him, Patty. So it's the same old story, right? Yeah. You know, I suppose when we are talking about these types of big projects, construction, infrastructure and otherwise, it's probably, you know, a, a worthwhile nod of appreciation to folks outside of government and the construction industry who have been part of driving this home and making sure that it did come to pass. I, I know where you're coming from, Dave. Now, Patty, I got one more thing, if you, if you don't mind. Uh, with, the, with the news about the mill in Cornbrook now in trouble again, we need this wind project in Stable to go ahead. It's delayed again for another 70 days. Nobody wants the environment, you know, ruined or nothing, but there's a rumor now that this could, this could be moved out of Stable if it's much more delays. And here we are. Everything we get on the West Coast, we got, uh, what's his name, the ex-mayor in St. John's, Doc O'Keefe, fighting against us with the windmills out here. Not a word. He's just going to have a big project in, in Bjorn, going, going to play 5,000 men. Not a word about that out there. Patty, what's the, what's the problem? Why are they all against the West Coast? And when our new hospital opened in 2003 in Stable Sir Thomas Roddick Hospital, we were, they were going to take the service out of our hospital right away, except we had rallies again and we saved the Patty. So, you know, our health committee is really working hard and, and we don't get recognized. And Jerry Byrne now wouldn't even recognize. He was in the other day. He had his son there with him. He had his father-in-law there with him. They never helped the, the volunteer like we did. Fair enough, Dave. And hopefully the folks that need to hear your message are listening this morning. And thank you very much, Patty, you and Dave, for letting me spiel that out this morning. I appreciate the time, Dave. Stay in touch. All right, you're welcome. Bye-bye. And on that front, you mentioned Frank Coleman. Remember back when there was that issue with the 80 kilometers of road that did not get paved by Humber Valley Paving? And consequently, you know, that was multi-million dollar contract of course maybe 19 million if the number if my memory serves but on top of that after they walked away from it the millions of uh, dollars in insurance bonds that were in hand were given back and what was on the go at the time exactly what uh, dave just said mr coleman was running for the pc leadership so timing is everything and when asked and there was an investigation the minister of transportation at the time was nick mcgraw and when there was an investigation done or they were looking for some uh precedents of the past about this and it wasn't outside the bounds but the problem was even at the time was wasn't the premier uh tom marshall at the time and apparently he didn't even know what was going on on this file because pretty big stuff. Someone who's the owner and operator of a big paving company, the contract did not get satisfied, the insurance bonds were returned, and a decision made solely by the transportation minister with no knowledge of the premier. Remember that kerfuffle? That was pretty good. All right, let's take a break. You stay right there, Paul. He's a taxi driver. Let's talk about ride sharing. Don't go away. Nutrition, exercise, keeping the cold at bay. Whatever keeps you feeling great, the Wellness and Healthy Lifestyle Show on your VOCM. Welcome back to the show. Let's go. Line number two. Good morning, Paul. You're on the air. Good morning, Patty. How are you? Very well. How about you? Not too bad. Patty, uh, you, this is the first time caller here. <clears throat> I usually don't get involved into it, but I'm a local taxi driver here. And uh, I was listening to Christopher Hollywood there yesterday, and a, and a young fellow, Mike, phoned in that's going to be an Uber driver and everything else. And about, like, how Uber don't have to do this, Uber don't have to do that. Now, apparently, they're still looking into it and everything else. I know, as Mike said, all you need it was public liability and, uh, and insurance. Never said nothing about a driver's abstract and never said nothing about a, a police, uh, police background check. 
Uh, I know you said that uh, Uber does their own background checks, but uh, I watch CBC Marketplace, and if anybody else in Newfoundland, which I would imagine they do, watch it, they'll see about Uber. They refuse wheelchairs. They refuse uh, service dogs, no car seats, no booster seats. And that's something that the taxi industry here in St. John's do do. Oh, look, right? that, there's that they no, don't offer. I certainly have never said anything along the lines of Uber's perfect because they're absolutely not. They've, had been, they've been riddled with problems ever since they were introduced. But there are a bunch of minimum requirements, and there is a driver screening, which looks at your driving record, so that's your driver's abstract and criminal history. They use a company, I think it's called ISB Global, that does some of that work for them. So it's more than just saying, here's my driver's license, here's my car, and proof of ownership, and away you go. There's more to it. Okay, yeah, that, that's what we need to know from the government. Like, uh, they're going to have the provincial government are taking this over, not the municipal. Danny Breen washed his hands of it, of course. And so the, the provincial government are taking it over. So they got to put some kind of a team or inspector or organization in to make sure that these drivers follow those rules, as we had to do with City Hall. Absolutely. You know, the issue here is I think we're doing a lot of, and rightfully so, asking questions, but we're also talking about hypotheticals at this point because nothing's finalized. We don't know exactly what's going to happen here, but everything, all the concerns you're putting forward or Chris puts forward or the general public, that has to be attended to. It's got to not only be fair, but it's got to be safe and it's got to be, you know, equitable across the board. We can't simply bounce all of the traditional tax industry out, and that's not going to happen. Now, there will be a loss of revenue, inevitably, but we need to know a lot more about how Uber's going to work in the province. And so far as Danny Breen washing his hands of it, there was always going to have to be provincial legislation here because Uber might be something that someone living in Marystown would, might want to do on a Friday night. And, of course, if I book a ride on Uber from downtown St. John's to bring me home to paradise, then it's not just a St. John's thing. So I know why the province has to be responsible for the legislation. Yeah, and I understand that the problem's having to get involved into it, but half of these people, you're, you're talking about Marystown and, say, Port Blanford and all out around those places, half of those people don't have internet. You can leave you can leave St. John's and go to head out to Shea Heights, out to Petty Harbour, and, and when you get to the top of Blackhead Road, you've got no internet, you've got nothing, right? You lose everything, even with the tab, even with the new tablets and everything now. Right? There's places all over this island that Uber's not going to benefit those people because 100%. they don't even have access to, to telephones. You're right. Right. Yep. So, and and what really got me is I lived in Alberta for all oh, handy to twenty years. I moved back home in twenty nineteen, and the way I looked at it, they were trying to get people to move back home. It's a great place to live and everything else like that. Uh, the premier and Danny, they talk about uh, Danny Breen. They talk about uh, uh, you know shop local, buy local, spend local, and here they are. They're going to bring in a company, thirty two billion dollar company that's out of another province that 35% of everybody's wages who's going to drive over is going to be shipped out of the province. So how is that local? You know, okay, it's it's another fair point. The issue here is that for the long while, there was a concern, even inside your own industry, about the price of fuel and the price of insurance. And consequently, there was a shortage of cab drivers. And consequent to that, there was a real problem for some people to get taxis. I mean, people were arriving at St. John's International Airport and no taxis out front. People were calling for a regular Friday night spin wherever they're going to their buddy's house or the bar or the concert and waiting, you know, 40, 50 minutes for a taxi. So people were saying, how come we don't add to the fleet? and in the form of ride sharing with Lyft or Uber or whatever the case may be. And again, until all the details are well understood, I don't know if people are going to give it a thumbs up or thumbs down. It's a very trendy thing to do. When I arrive anywhere on the mainland, I immediately just ask for an Uber. 
because it's simple. It's right there in my hand. I don't have to stand in line. I don't have to do anything. And, you know, maybe it is about trend versus reality. And people will have to be buyer beware if there's going to be the possibility for a certain time of day or night where the fees go up or the fares go up inside an Uber versus what's a controlled fare in a taxi cab, then people just have to make their own decisions based on what they hear from their buddies or what they experience themselves. Yeah, Paddy, like I said, I moved on from Calgary in 2019 after almost 20 years up there. Uh, that was also an issue in Calgary. That was also an issue right across Canada for taxis. And if you know what it was? It was because of COVID. That's, that's where a lot of, and, and a lot of businesses to this day, outside of the taxi industry, still never bounced back because of COVID. True. And now I was one of the fellas that was foolish enough, I suppose. I worked through Snowmageddon. I worked because I live alone. I, I, if I caught COVID, I never brought it home to anybody. So the, the way I looked at it, I worked through COVID. I made very little money. The days I made none. But I thought that it was a service that if we kept the lights on, they'd respect us when the COVID was over, that they'd come back and use, our regular customers would use our business that needed it, right? That's, and, I, and I stayed through that. And a lot of drivers didn't because of health issues and everything else. And I understand it. But the taxi drivers were there, true people. I was one of the ones that was foolish enough to go around delivering groceries in, in the middle of snowmageddon for free, picking up prescriptions for free. The city forgot about that, and the government did too. We were there when we were needed, all the drivers, every company, chipped in and did what we had to. And now they're gonna bring in a company and ruin the industry on us. Yeah, there is. And look, I even talk about it, and some people say, "Look, it's not your, no, it's none of your business what I do with my own hard-earned money." And they're one hundred percent right. It is none of my business. The issue regarding shopping local is that you know the money circulating amongst the community versus, as you rightfully point out, some thirty, thirty-five percent of money spent on Uber rides will make it to a company that's not based here in this province, so out-of-province money. Versus if I spend it with you guys, or I'm not even sure which cab company you drive for, but if I spend it with the local cab company or at the local shop or the locally owned restaurant or the locally owned mom and pop operation, the money, you know, helps create jobs, puts profit in the, bank, the uh, bank account to folks who have taken the risk to open and start a small business or a medium-sized business. So I think the shop local is a, a absolutely positive message. Now, to compare to Uber coming to town, fair enough. I understand where you're coming from, Paul. Would you like to say anything else while we have you this morning? No, no, that's it. Like, I just wanted, just wanted to put it out there. And like I say, uh, uh, you know, like... Even the premier and the mayor of the city, they're saying buy local, shop local, spend local. And I think they're being hypocrites because now they're bringing in companies. And they were the ones that, that's pushing for this. And there's one more thing I'd like to mention. Sure. I think uh, John Abbott is the transportation minister. Uh, yeah, Dave just said something in my ear. Uh, John Abbott moved from social development to transportation. I think you're right, yeah. Okay, so we never heard anything from him. Everything is coming from the Premier and, and Sarah Studley. Like, where, where is his point of view on this being the Transportation Minister? Like, where is he? Yeah, well, the reason uh, Minister Studley is involved because of the, uh, the digital implications of. And yes, uh, John Abbott is Minister of Transportation and Infrastructure and in charge of public procurement. We can certainly put the bug in his ear. We can ask him the question directly, Paul. That's no problem because you're right. It is part of his portfolio, I suppose. Yeah, yeah, and like I say, never heard a word from him. Like I haven't heard anything from him, not unless I missed it. Ever since this uh, this uh, Uber bit started, right over and lift. And I just like to make one more thing, and then I'm going to leave you alone. Uh, I'd like for people to Google. Everybody who got access to a Google machine, just Google Uber incidents, and read down through it, and just see 
what has been transpired since 2017 to date of 2023. And then make your judgment when they come here if you want to use them or not. Appreciate Thank you very much for your time. I yeah. appreciate yours, Paul. Take good care of yourself. Yeah, thank you. You're welcome. Have a good day. You too. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. All right, uh, let's keep rolling here. Let's go to line number four and say good morning to the general manager of the Newfoundland Labrador Snowmobile Federation. That's Matthew Swain. Matthew, you're on the air. Good morning, Patty. Morning to you. Welcome to the show. Thanks. This was probably a long time coming, probably a long time in the works, but tell us about the new app that you've created, and then we'll get into some of the partnerships you've struck with GPS companies and whatnot. So how did this begin, and where are we? Yeah, so uh, it kind of began, we, we've been supplying maps and mapping services to our uh, customers for basically since the Federation began through uh, paper mapping and through our online uh, website. And it just uh, we've seen as a natural progression just to kind of get it onto everyone's smartphones that everyone has in their pocket these days and then just give it uh, more uh, live feedback. And fair enough, there's two versions of it. Let's start with the free app. What's included? So the free app is you're just getting basically the basic information. You'll get the trail data. You'll get the warm shelter locations, uh, some points of interest like gas stations, restaurants, hotels, that kind of thing. Uh, But when you get into the the paid app, that's when you get a lot more features. And it's pretty cost effective, too. We're talking about $4.99 for the year. But in the world of working with the GPS companies, is that feature going to be available regardless of where you're riding? Uh, yeah, so m- most smartphones now, or I should say all smartphones now, have uh, GPS antennas built right into them. So even when you're not in cell phone service, your phone still has GPS capabilities. So as long as you have the app open and the data downloaded before you leave, you should be able to see it no matter where you are in Ireland. Uh, on that front, how quickly will the information be pushed forward? Like if there's a, uh, a closure of a trail or what have you, is this kind of instantaneous stuff, or how is that actually going to work for real-time interaction? Uh, yeah, we have uh, complete control of the background information right here in office. So as soon as we are notified of anything that needs to be changed, we can go on to the, uh, the manager background app and uh, cha- make the, the uh, change, and it can be pushed out in uh, real time right to the users. So as opposed to simply trying to modernize, because that's where we are in the digital age, were there a lot of incidents where the people had problems with signage, whether they be locals or people traveling to do some backcountry riding out on the West Coast, or people being lost? Were there a couple of things that drove this forward? or is this just natural progression? Absolutely. It's, it's one of the biggest uh, bits of feedback we get here in our office is, is trail signage, and we try to do our best over the years to increase signage, make sure that our riders are, are aware of uh, where they are and where, how to get where they're looking to go, but uh, unfortunately, you know, st- signs go missing or, or stuff breaks or, or whatever, and uh, it's just a... Just a uh, easier way for us to get the information into the hands of, of the users. And it talks about, uh, you know, knowing where the warming centers are and what have you. How common are these places to get in out of the conditions if they turn nasty? We, we have a nice few, I think there's about 38 total warm shelters on the island, and they're, they're usually spaced, uh, you know, 20 or 30 kilometers apart in the backcountry where you're away from communities and stuff where if, if you do get into trouble, you, you shouldn't have to travel too far before you come across somewhere where you can get in, get out the weather, get a fire going, get warmed up and, and whatever you need. Is it your organization that uh, operates, manages these? Yes, well, uh, uh, the Federation is made up of 17 clubs across the island and uh, 
the clubs are responsible for maintaining these warm shelters. And in the world of uh, the trail network, you know, it's one thing to be out in the backcountry, but on the groom trails, what have you, there's always that resistance from some snowmobile riders to want to be involved in buying a membership and helping contribute to the grooming. Where are we on that front? Because that's been an annual debate as to whether or not people should be uh, obliged to or leave it up to their own discretion. Yeah, we are seeing uh, we our support is increasing as the years go on. We're we're every year we're getting uh, more and more people that are are buying our trail passes. And I, I think that's a direct result of us providing the product in a in a better way year after year. So hopefully this will be one more tool that'll help people see the benefit of actually of purchasing a trail pass. We've seen an explosion in the number of people buying and riding snowmobiles, and that's the, on the domestic front and the local front. Is there a big number of people that to make their way to the province to enjoy back? country or, or trails or otherwise? There definitely are an, uh, a lot of people that come from outside the province here to ride and a uh, big part of that is because of the, the the fewer restrictions that we have here in Newfoundland compared to on the mainland. On the mainland a lot of trails are on private land, farmland, that kind of thing and, and you're kind of limited to be where the trail is, you're not allowed to leave the trail but here in Newfoundland you pretty much got free reign to go wherever you like. You know, when we talk about things like, for instance, uh, the outfitters and people coming to hunt moose and whatnot, they've attached a dollar amount of economic impact. Do we have some idea, Matthew, about uh, economic impact of people traveling here to ride? Uh, we, we, we did a economic impact study back in uh, 2017, and uh, the, the findings of that was that was there was about $25 million annually spent or provided into the province from organized snowmobiling. So uh, the, those numbers are from 2017. Obviously, things which, a, lot, a lot of things have changed since then, so obviously the numbers have only increased. But there's, there's definitely a big uh, influx of money coming to the province for, from snowmobiling. Is the application launched already? Can people sign up and have a look at it? Yeah, absolutely. So uh, it went live uh, November 1st. We had a few issues the first couple of days with the, the Apple uh, store, but those have been straightened away, so it should be available to everyone right now on the App Store. Just just search for NLSF, and that uh, should pop right up. Do we have an idea how many people have already downloaded it? Because uh, the snow hasn't started to fly. We're not on the sleds quite yet. No, absolutely. Yeah, we, we do get the weekly updates from the uh, developer on it, and so far we've had about 1,100 downloads. Amazing stuff. Matthew, anything else you'd like to say about the app or the pending snowmobile season? Uh, no, we're just uh, we're busy getting everything ready, hoping we're going to have a good uh, good snowy winter and get lots of uh, snowmobilers out on the snow this year. Fantastic. I look forward to getting out myself. Thanks for your time this morning, Matthew. Thank you, Patty. You're welcome. Bye-bye. Bye. Matthew Swain is the oops, wrong clicker. Matthew Swain is the general manager of the Newfoundland Labrador Snowmobile Federation. I have to quickly correct myself. I gave you some bogus information regarding the uh, national championships of men's rugby. The Seahawks played yesterday. I thought it was this afternoon. I'm surprised I didn't hear. So yesterday, Munn actually beat Ottawa 33-21. Now they move on to play what would be an uber-strong side, the University of Victoria Vikings, which is at 9.25 p.m. Newfoundland Standard Time. That's tomorrow. So the Seahawks won, beat Ottawa yesterday 33-21. Big thanks to my buddy Keith for letting me know. Let's take a break. When we come back, Noreen's there to talk about the cost of flights out of Labrador. Don't go away. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number three. Good morning, Noreen. You're on the air. Good morning, Patty. How are you this morning? Doing fine, thanks. How about you? I'm good. Thanks for taking my call. Uh, I just wanted to um, 
have some commentary. Uh, I watched the news yesterday evening, as I'm sure many people across the island and Labrador did, and I was a little bit perturbed, I think, to say uh, to see the launch of WestJet. Delighted for my island friends, don't get me wrong, family, the whole kit caboodle, probably use it myself in time. You know, when you can get an airline ticket from St. John's to uh, for Europe for $1,000 return. Last Tuesday, I went to the airport here to go for business meetings. I left the house at quarter after 10. At 4.30 in the evening, I was back home after having to stay at the airport all day to be told that my flight was cancelled. Now, the price of that airline ticket, if you're not a unionized member in town or it doesn't cover you for that reason, was $1,700.04 return. So what I wanted to relate this is anybody realize the effect this is having on many, many of our seniors here in town. I have seniors every other week who have to fly for specialty service, of course, which we don't get here, which is not available to us here, who have appointments to get out. And, uh, you know, the cost of airlines and the downgrade of service of our PAL Airlines flight has been so noticeable over the last few months. What exactly has happened with the decrease in service? Well I, guess, well, I guess what's happening is PAL took over the Air Canada run, you know, after uh, COVID when Air Canada did not return. Yep. And, uh, you know, what we're being told is, like I said, I spent the day at the airport. The first announcement was, well, they said it was weather. Then the next four announcements don't leave the airport, but it was mechanical difficulties. At that day, there was at least 12 people at the airport whose flights were already being booked and confirmed for Sunday. So they were three days, didn't get their flights. I mean, it's long been a concern in Labrador. It's, you know, the frequency of flights, the expense of flights. I know there are some financial incentives in place to try to control costs, but I mean, the case is clear. If I can fly to London, England, far cheaper than I can fly to Wabush or Goose Bay or even to Stephenville or Deer Lake, there's something patently wrong there. And I know operational costs are much different for an operation the size of Provincial Airlines or PAL versus the massive companies like Air Canada WestJet, but it is absolutely prohibitive. If you even look at someone who's got repeated needs throughout the course of the year to travel in and out of St. John's for just even for medical needs, even the, the, the medical transportation program that's in place still doesn't really cover enough of the cost to make it realistic for people to be able to do it. I, ha- I know a family who are they're in contact with me all the time. They felt they had no other choice but to move from their home, and I'll leave the community out of it in Labrador, to move close by. They're living in paradise simply because they have a child who's sick and one of their parents is in you know, constant need of uh, medical supervision and attention. So they had to move. Now, I, I'm not saying that that's good, bad, or different, but that's the reality for that family. I know, Petty. I like uh, so many uh, seniors I spoke to at the airport on Tuesday, last Tuesday when I was there. There was a woman there in a wheelchair and her daughter was with her. And she told me, my mom has to fly once a month for a specialty service in Cornerbrook. Now, that day she didn't get out. The next day she didn't get out. So major delays. And, you know, when you have appointments set up, like it's not a matter of just picking up the phone from the airport and saying to your doctor's office, well, you know, our flight got cancelled today. Well, when are you coming? Well, I don't really know when I'm coming. So, you know, like it's having a major effect on seniors. And, I mean, the other part about it is the cost. Like many, many seniors I'm aware of, like our 50-plus club, like we will have to try to... 
you know, get people to donate air miles or try to do a fundraiser. And I know the MTEP has done some changes to their program. But in the last month, I have had at least five calls from people with major issues with the MTAC program of trying to get travel reimbursed. And, you know, what people say, well, put it on a credit card. But does the majority of population across Newfoundland and Labrador, I wonder, realize that there's many, many seniors who do not have a credit card? That's true, and a credit card comes with a pretty whopping high interest, so if you can't pay it off right away, then you're going to be paying a lot more for a flight for medical reasons or otherwise. I mean, the average, what is it, 19% for many people on their credit card? So that yeah, comes absolutely. with an additional cost. Like we, ha- we have many seniors here who just don't go to get the medical treatment that they need. I mean, there's no, you know as well as I do, it's no good to go to the airline counter and say, well, I need to get out, but I mean, I can't buy a ticket. So, you know, you just don't go. So I really feel, you know, that there's a responsibility on organizations in our towns, you know, our municipalities, our chamber of commerce, to try to start these conversations and see if there's something that can be done to, you know, to to upgrade our service and to put some relief on the cost of flying. Yeah, and I, I suppose there's only one way that comes, and that's with direct government intervention, I would imagine. So maybe it's an enhancement to the medical transportation assistance program. But for other forms of travel, whether it be for work or pleasure, I don't know what kind of appetite either party in any level of government is going to want to uh, pay on that front. But I understand where you're yeah. coming from. Yeah, but at least look at, look at it for, you know, the medical piece and that it's working for, you know, for, for people that got to get out for medical reasons. The rest, I guess, you know, you learn to work out and whatever you can. Gives you time to book if you're going. But lots of times you have a medical appointment. Like, it's nothing to get a call from a specialist office in St. John's and say, you know, we want you out here in two days, right? Mm-hmm. So there's no break on your ticket. There's no, you know, so you, you just got to go. If you, can get, if you can get on, if you can get a flight. That's the other thing. I've been at the airport a month ago, and I stepped back to let somebody go because they had a death in the family, because there was just no availability, no seats, because our town has become a fly-in and fly-out. The last flight I took to St. John's, a 75-seater plane, uh, there was two females, and the rest was male workers on fly-in and fly-out turnarounds amazing stuff noreen anything else quickly because i do have to get to the news no i just want to say that the recommendations uh, from the seniors advocate report every single one of them we can relate to here in lab west and i don't need to go into it about our seniors housing lack of seniors housing lack of personal care and absolutely total lack of home care because you cannot get somebody even if you want to pay a wonderful rate of pay so i always appreciate your time noreen thank you Thank you, Patty. You're Take welcome. Take care. You too. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. And, you know, people say, well, put it on your credit card. If you have a $1,000 balance on your credit card with a 19% interest attached to it and only make minimum payments, it takes you about 10 and a half or 11 years to pay off your credit card. Well, I mean, amazing stuff. Mike did a breakdown of what it's going to cost to fly WestJet for uh, two adults to go to England. Air transportation charges, $1,844. Adult base fare times two, $644. Other associated fees, 1200 bucks. Taxes, fees, and charge add up to 518 the breakdown there, air travel security charge, 5182 Air passenger duty in the United Kingdom, $299.80. HST, 1260 Airport improvement fee, 84 bucks. Passenger service charge for the other, I don't even know how these are separated, but for two people to fly, price include tax and fees, $2,362.30. Let's take a break. Todd's in the queue to talk about the homeless, and here comes winter, and then we're going to speak with Jim Din, the NDP leader, uh, the NDP leader, yes, and the member for St. John's Centre. Don't go away. 
Start your day off right. Get the latest updates on news, traffic, and weather conditions. Plus, interviews with today's newsmakers. Your go-to source before you get on the go. 5.30 to 9 a.m. weekdays. Your VOCM mornings. Welcome back. Let's go to line number one. Todd, you're on the air. Morning, Patrick. How are you, sir? Doing okay. How about you? Oh, top shelf, as you would say, taking one out of your your mouth. <laughs> I want to talk about the uh, gentleman on the corner of uh, Kenmount and Kelsey again. I, I know I, uh, I was talking to you just over two weeks ab- uh, about the gentleman there. Mm-hmm. What I, I'm curious about, like, don't get me wrong, I went to social media and all my friends ponied up. I gave him a Hallie Hansen polar wear that I had. A friend of mine gave him boots, all that stuff. Well taken care of. I got a couple of people dropped him some food, stuff like that. That's not the, the that's not what I'm calling about to get help for him. I am to calling to get help from him. I'm looking for an avenue. I, I I'm trying to find an avenue that I can get like a health provider, like a nurse or or, or a social worker, somebody who can go in and look at this guy and assess him because he's not well. And that and he lives in a ditch. Okay, and he's on the high part of town. He's not downtown. Your producer was telling me the outreach is downtown. They only stay in that area. For the most part, that's true, yeah. Yeah, so he's up. Now, your producer also told me that the RNC are now checking in on him every now and then, and I I thank uh, them for doing that. Uh, But uh, I'd like to get his health checked on. Is there somewhere that I can call and or somebody I can avail of? Like, don't get me wrong. Mr. Jim Dean is absolutely wonderful. And he's really taken on this plight of of the homelessness and that. I know that's part of the NDP's package and stuff like that. But uh, I haven't called him or spoke to his office. But I'm asking you or anybody that's listening, is there an avenue? you that I can get probably I don't know healthcare social work wherever that I can actually get a professional not an RNC officer a police officer don't get me wrong I I, I really enjoy that they check on him but we need a healthcare provider to check on this man this man is ill I don't know if there's such a thing as, you know, on behalf of this gentleman, as opposed to he himself reaching out for help. I don't know if you can be his advocate. I wouldn't exactly know where to point you. Maybe a social worker would be where I would start. But that's also precarious stuff for people trying to advocate a in-person visit for someone who's not presenting themselves for help. So I'm not sure. And you mentioned Jim Din. Curiously, he's next. Maybe he has a better idea about what you should do. But the Department of Social Social work is probably where I would start, I would imagine, even if they can't say, yes, okay, we will, uh, on your uh, request, make an in-person visit to that person, but maybe they'll know exactly what could be done, because beyond wellness checks conducted by the law enforcement agencies, in this case the RNC, I would simply go to the Department of Social Work and see if they can give you some advice, or maybe they're the right people to talk to, I'm not sure. Yeah, I, I'm going to listen to Mr. Din. I, I'm, I'm here waiting. He'd go in somewhere. But I'm going to wait and listen to Mr. Din and see what he got to say, because nine times out of ten, he's hearing me right now. And that. Um, so, like, the, the, the poor man is ill, and he he's in a world now what I call complacency. So he lives in a ditch, so this is what he knows. So he's not going to push to help himself, you know? You get complacent after a while. We wake up, we get our breakfast, we have our coffee, we have a shower, a shave, we go to work, we're like ants. Now, he's in that routine now over there he's been there that long so maybe he don't have the energy to help himself anymore uh, 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 a little bit further than what he is 
okay, you know, maybe he's complacent, he's he's settled down where he's two, and things like that there. So, and I don't want that to happen to him. Uh, to be honest with you, this man is not related to me or anything. I stop and talk to him all the time, and, and have a chat with him, and I bring him a subway card every second day, $20 subway card, because it's just right next to him, so he can avail of a meal, in a way, and that, so that way he's well taken care of, but health-wise, he isn't. And there's nobody speaking for him. I know I was on with you over two weeks ago in that, and, and we had a good chat and all that, and I enjoyed it. I had people, uh, friends of mine from the mainland that heard me on with you from Alberta was offering me money to give to this man. But I don't accept money from anybody. You want to do something for somebody, you go do it for them. Okay, I, I, I'm not that avenue for that. I don't mind being a voice, but I'm I, I'm not going to take monetary money and bring it to him, okay, or anything like that but they wanted me to buy boots in that form but the boots came uh, a friend of mine gave them boots and and things like that but this there's got to be something in our system that we can help this man up here he's a nice guy and he's sick and 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 i know he's not pushing himself to get medical help and that but uh he he needs to be checked on and you know there's 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 a thousand like him i know but this guy is just in my face every day and uh, and i've uh, i've i guess i i've created a friendship with him uh over the last few months and that and uh, he sees me he, he comes right for my car my truck whatever i'm in we has a little chat or sometimes i pull over on the grass there and have a brings him over and and we as a coffee and stuff like that, you know, just to be a human being and have a chat with another human being, you know, it's it's a big thing uh, to people that are alone and that. Todd, have you I, I, yeah. have you offered to bring him down to the health sciences to get a check in at the emergency room or to present himself at the gathering place and maybe just maybe when you start that ball rolling, maybe he'll get the type of medical intervention that you think he needs and you're probably 100% right. It's hard to believe that anyone could be in good health when they live in a ditch. So have you offered to bring him somewhere? Uh, I have, and uh, he says, no, I'm okay, you know, okay, the pride's coming out then, right? And, uh, you know, I know I've had conversation with him, and he's told me he, he has cancer, okay? I've had that conversation. I know that's very private for me and him and everything else, but if it helps for for me to get somebody to go check on him, that's that's a health care premier is a friggin' doctor. Stop in and check on the man, for God's sakes. You took a Hippocratic well. oath to do what you can. Like, this, it, it, it is a frustrating situation, but I, I, I'm trying to trying to get something for this guy but I've offered to take him places and things like that Like, <laughs> I have no space in my house there's two extra people living in my house that I've taken in that, that uh, in my house okay uh, the only place I have for this man is my shed and I can't do that because my shed's infested with rats <laughs> okay. okay, so, but Todd, I, you know... I'd actually take him and bring him in my shed if I could, but I, I can't do that, right? Uh, but I need to... I, I'll listen to Mr. Din next and, and see if we can't... Uh, see see if Mr. Din uh, can't give me an avenue that I can call upon or something like that. Like, I know that All I right. call social or something like that, but I was just hoping that maybe you had a different avenue that I could uh, that I could avail of. It gets complicated, though, Todd. When If someone doesn't want help, 
it's hard to force help on them. So if Mr. Din has an idea or suggestion beyond what uh, we've discussed here, fair enough, and I'm sure he'll offer that when we come back and speak with him. But when people don't want help, it's hard to know what next steps are because, you know, no one wants to force anything on the poor man, even though it would be terrific if we didn't have uh, didn't have him living in the conditions he's living and standing on that corner day in, day out, and now with the pending winter weather coming. So I understand why people have big hearts and are worried about folks like him and many, many others who are not only in the city but around the province who desperately need help and are not getting it, whether they want it or not. Todd, we'll see what Mr. Din has to say after this. I appreciate the time. Listen, I appreciate your time, and and once again, I will say this: uh, like a lot of other people, I appreciate this uh, this via this media uh, avenue for us to uh, to vent, look for information, and all these things. Uh, you, you're doing fantastic, and and I we're all big fans of EOCM's open line. I appreciate this. Patty. Listen, Todd, before you go, I'm going to put you on hold. Dave has actually has a number he wants to share with you. Excellent. Thank you, Patty. You're welcome. Take care. Bye-bye. Todd's on hold. Uh, Dave will pick up there. Let's take a break. When we come back, Jim Din, who, of course, is the member for St. John's Centre and the leader of the NDP. He's next, and then we're speaking with you. Don't go away. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number four. Say good morning to the NDP member for St. John's Centre. He's the leader of the party. That's Jim Din. Jim, you're on the air. Good morning, Patty. Thank you for having me on again. (laughs) No problem. Uh, I was listening to Todd, and uh, it's a heartbreaking story. Um, He can certainly have my office number. I don't know if that's what's been given to him, but uh, I can certainly give it to anyone, who, for that matter, who wishes to call, um, and that's uh, 729-2638. Um, but I will, you know, uh, certainly we will, he can call and, and uh, uh, bring the uh, concerns to us. We will make contact with the appropriate, uh, uh, like either ch- uh, Children, Seniors, and Social Development or the Department of Health, uh, as we see. But I think we'll probably reach out to the gentleman first uh, to make sure that uh, find out what his situation is. We found, I know, that uh, people people who are panhandling sometimes have nowhere to go in the day. They, they've been uh, removed from, the, they've had to get out of the shelter, and they're often just trying to make and get basic uh, money to make basic uh, needs. And often I learned this because usually when I uh, make a, if I give them uh, money, I take a minute to have that chat with them. And they're, and they're people, people struggling like the, like many of us. But I think we'll we'll have that conversation with him to make sure that uh, what his situation is and to make sure that uh, we can uh, find the appropriate action. Uh, that much I'll commit to. Yeah, and I'm trying yeah. to find the contact information for the mobile health unit that I think really concentrates in the downtown, and I'm yeah. told you'll see it sometimes around the gathering place. I'm not entirely sure what to do when people are asking for suggestions of how to get someone help when the help has been offered and he resists. I, I, I don't know exactly what next steps would be. And I would imagine beyond medical intervention. I think you start with a social worker or someone who has that type of training. Uh, but anyway, let's hope we can find out something no, or figure I, something I agree. out. It starts with a conversation because in the end, you know, uh, they, they, they're adults and they'll make those decisions. But I think it starts with a conversation first. And I think Todd has asked that first question, you know, are you all right? Uh, and I think uh, we go, uh, then it, we go from there. But, uh, you know, certainly we'll, we will follow up on it um, and make that commitment. And uh, I'll get back to you uh, maybe uh, by email whatever as to what we found out. How's that? Okay, sounds good. Appreciate it. 
So the other reason I guess I was calling in today uh, had to do with the uh, the special report by the Office of the Information and Privacy Commissioner that was uh, out yesterday and had to do with the, con- the pro- consultation in uh, uh, the with the, his office. It's interesting. One of the conclusions I guess that should be disturbing not only to MHAs but to all members of the uh, of this prov- all people of this province is that members should therefore be aware that consultation with this office is now fundamentally diminished and uh, from how it has been for the past eight years and he he speaks uh, he's uh, the, uh, michael harvey speaks of references two bills that uh, recently debated uh, bill 56 the access to information and privacy act and bill 54 uh on the municipalities act in which case the uh, the uh, that he basically says uh, that you know that uh, when the minister claimed that uh, that there was a, a consultation and that the commission was agreed with the approach that that was inaccurate, and then on the other one with the uh, with the privacy act that there was no consultation at all, and I was left to shake my head, Patty, because a year ago we were debating Bill 20 in the House of Assembly, and that had to do with the amalgamation of the of the uh, health authorities in the one. And at that time, we had concerns about the, uh, the, the way it was being rushed through and also uh, uh, some concerns around privacy. And we get a, a letter from Michael Harvey at that time that he had not been provided with a copy of the act and therefore was unable to uh, render anything uh, in, in terms of meaning, meaningful um, advice on it. So that that bothers me for many reasons. I mean, uh, it's only three weeks ago that uh, I basically uh, uh, in the house called. I lost lost my speaking privileges for call, calling out the uh, uh, for calling out uh, the government government members for uh, for what not being truthful about the uh, the 750 units options so on and so forth and, mm. uh, and every now and again i'm thinking maybe i should retract the statement and then along comes this report but the other part of this and here's the, i guess something that's bothered me since i was first elected is the we get we get it's a technical briefing sometimes the day before on on this on legislation and some of it's pretty significant and I do believe in informed debate, but it's kind of hard to have informed debate, especially when you're a small caucus or uh, and uh, and you're trying to come up, uh, trying to see, uh, figure out where do we need to go, who do we need to consult with, and you find out that uh, that a key officer uh, who will be essential in this uh, in this process, the privacy commissioner, is not being consulted. Um, I think in other provinces he references the fact that you have standing legislative committees, which then make sure basically um, do a full consultation, full process on this, so that at least by the time it gets to uh, legislative assembly, there's a reasonable certainty that due diligence has been done. So I I, I find the report troubling. You know, I, 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 I... stood for election, I took on this job, and I take it seriously, especially debate, uh, about making sure that uh, that what the legislation we pass is in the best interest of the province. And long after I'm, you know, I, 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 I'm out of this job, um, you know, I, I, 
I realize that the decisions we make here are going to have an effect on people long after that. So I think it's important that whatever we do in this process, that we consult that government, whoever government is, consults widely, has has an informed debate, um, is totally transparent about the process, and uh, so, so that we all know where we are. And uh, and it, it, if nothing else, I think it inspires confidence and trust in the system. A report like this and some of the things that uh, I've, I've seen since I've been there does not inspire um, uh, trust. I think it undermines it in many ways. Sure. So, I mean, the roller coaster of uh, access to information has been very, very real. I'll stick uh, with my contention that the unraveling or the undoing of the PCs was built 29 to be honest with you then in 2015 the new information pardon me the access to information and protection of privacy act of 2015 widely regarded as the best in the country now all of a sudden we've had michael harvey talk about the potential overuse or abuse of solicitor client privilege now this report which is 33 pages long yeah. i'm in the middle of getting through it but here's some of the high level stuff and you know you mentioned a couple of the issues very succinctly moreover members should be aware that it is this office's views that the nature of the government's change in consultation practices number one, does not adequately meet the obligations of ministers under section 112, subsection 1. Two, prevents the commissioner from meeting his obligations under the law, section 112, subsection 2. And number three, inhibits the commissioner's ability to exercise his authorities under section 112, subsection 3. Goes on to talk about a variety of other different things and moving parts of the legislation, but even if we just understand those and those very high-level concerns that Michael Harvey has, this is just going backwards. You know, we had a desperate set of uh, circumstances when, you know, frivolous and vexatious uh, requests for information from the government. How dare us uh, peons, you know, want to see what's going on with our money and our government. And now it looked great in 2015, and I think we've taken a couple of giant steps backwards. We've got to get Mike Harvey on as soon as we can. No problem. And look, I think he exists, his office and offices like his exist for oversight and to make and do and make and to make sure that we as legislators legislators are doing the job that we were elected to do that I firmly believe in I, I to me transparency is it should be must be the hallmark of uh, of the of the House of Assembly and about whoever forms government it's as simple as that because we're you we're spending public money to serve the members of the public and I think it, 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 they deserve to know that the legislation we're debating and passing is the best possible for the people of the province. There's a political calculation here, which I don't understand their math. If, and I think it's true, that people started to not only run tired of the then-governing PC party, but then when it was concerns about simple access to information and the cloaks of secrecy and the lack of transparency, then it was put back in a really good spot. The calculation here is if people maybe, you know, people, uh, you get long in the tooth, and there's a certain number of years where people are willing to have one party in the seat of power. But if the erosion of trust gets in front of that long-in-the-tooth era, then they just add to their own potential demise quicker than possibly necessary. So trust is a big deal. There's a reason why apathy is at an all-time high, because people are sick of it, and people don't think they can trust this process. They don't think they can trust the governments. They don't think they can trust individual politicians. Surefire way to do that? Make Michael Harvey the star of the show. Make sure that every decision that's made that can see public information released, because there's going to be HR issues and commercial sensitivities and you know all those things that are important and they're real, and we don't have to see all of that stuff if it's been ruled on by Mr. Harvey. 
not by the cabinet, not by an individual, not by the premier, not by anybody. Mr. Harvey, let's make him the star. Look, and the key word you use here is apathy, because if if it gets to the point where people figure, well, there's not, what's the use? There's nothing we can do about this. They're going to do what they're going to do. There is that apathy that sets in, and I think that's detrimental to any any democracy into the democratic process. Recently, we passed the Agriculture Act, and one of the the clauses that they removed from it had to do with the the public availability of information around uh, reporting. uh, and we did try to put that back into the uh, act, but uh, I, I, I'm always amazed when, when, we, when we increase opaqueness and reduce transparency. Again, transparency, when people, are, uh, people can see what you're doing and they know what you're doing, there is a confidence. And I think that's the key thing here, that people need to be always uh, confident in uh, the work of, of their elected officials. Yeah, here, last comment for me, and then I'll let you wrap it up. When we talk about apathy, apathy is a massive problem for democratic institutions yeah. but it's a politician's best friend you know so that's the the contrast that we've got to shine a bit of light on and what i mean by that is erosion and trust in institutions is bad for us as citizens yeah. but for apathy to rule the day which it does i mean we've get voter turnout that's just pathetic numbers right because people don't think oh what's the sense they're all the same or whatever the reason is at, at, at that point politicians have just a smaller pool a voter pool that they have to uh, get their message through to fewer numbers of people required to come out and ha- see them elected as individuals and or as a party so apathy is absolutely the politician's best friend but as, as a taxpaying citizen it's my worst enemy i used to say when i would go door to door people say would take would say to me i don't vote and i said i when I, I would say to them that is music to any politician's ears 100 uh, percent, because i said that means that none of us have to worry about if you're not voting, you're not voting for me, you're not voting for anyone. I said the thing, best thing you can say to any politician, every politician that comes to the door, is that I haven't made up my mind and I'm going to decide because every politician that comes to the door, they're basically, you're, they, they, the voter is the employer, they should be the one uh, selling themselves and uh, they should uh, the voters are the ones who should have the power over uh, whether uh, of who represents them but to me that's the worst thing to say I think we need to, uh, we need to get around uh, uh, dispense with that people need to get involved and uh, and hold people to account the only other thing is look otherwise we have announcements uh, a few weeks ago about uh, about the number of housing units I think all these things that that we find out well that really weren't wasn't the case it does nothing to I think it undermines confidence uh, in the people uh, looking for solutions, but people are depending on these solutions and these decisions to uh, to uh, maybe get them out of a, a difficult situation. So, sure. you know, I think that's, uh, uh, transparency is not a bad thing. It's actually, I think, uh, the, a fundamental foundation. And it's good to have someone like Michael Harvey and the Office of the Pri- Privacy and Information Co- Commissioner to, uh, uh, Information and Privacy Commissioner there to hold us to that standard, you know? Sure. I appreciate the time, Jim. Thanks for this. Take care. Bye-bye. Take care. Bye-bye. It's Jim Din, member for St. John's Center and the leader of the party. During the campaigns, it very much feels like we are the employers doing job interviews. But after the governments get sworn in, we kind of feel like employees. Should be, you know, a pretty consistent theme throughout. Anyway, let's talk about municipal cooperation. We know regionalization went by the wayside, and now there's new opportunities for collaboration. That's exactly what's happening up on the Great Northern Peninsula. The mayors of Rodington, Bidearm, Angley, Mainbrook, and Conch are working together as a joint council to try to see their region have a viable, prosperous future. The mayor of Rodington, Bidearm, is Della Demostri, joins us right after this. Don't go away. 
Stay informed and have your say on the news of the day with your VOCM. Join Linda Swain weekday afternoons from 4 to 5 p.m. for an hour of talk and discussion with decision makers and listeners like you. News Talk on your VOCM. Welcome back to the program. Let's go to line number five. Say good morning to the mayor of Rodington by arm. That's Della Damas. Good morning, Mayor Damas. You're on the air. Hi, Patty. Thank you. How are you doing today? I'm very well. Thanks for asking. How about you? I'm doing very well. I cannot complain anyway. Well, that's a good thing because you're in the minority, <laughs> for better or worse. So I, when I read this story, I thought, you know, this is exactly what's required in many parts of the province. I know there was lots of pushback against formal regionalization. You know, maybe some of the local service districts didn't feel like they were included, had big questions that they didn't have answers to. But between your community, Anglee, Mainbrook, and Conch, you figured that the best way is strength in numbers. How did this partnership or relationship begin? Well, actually, Patty, I'm, uh, thank you for that question, because like, the regionalization was a uh, starting point, I want to say. None of us really knew what that looked like, mm-hmm. so it did get us started talking here, and we was having a lot of informal meetings. So when the, the government actually came out with the collaboration grants, we thought this was an opportune time for us to come together as the northeastern side and start working together because there's so much potential for our area and the four of our communities we're only stronger if we do work together there's so many assets that's here and well we just went to the table and we continue talking and, and we're going continuing to move forward with a lot of other conversations and ideas and we're just taking it one day and one step at a time. Well, to know that the collective population of the four communities is even less than 2,000, I remember reading in the story, one of the mayors said, I'm just sick of seeing the population decline. So what are some of the key areas where you're trying to collaborate? I think you were trying to hire an economic development officer, but give us an idea of what, where we are in the status of hiring that person. What are some of the areas that you think can indeed see businesses and people move back to your region? Well, uh, Patty, you know, in 2018, we lost uh, the Scotiabank here in Roddington by arm, and it serviced the entire side over here. When we saw that bank close out, we've also seen the decline of industry is losing customers because they go to the larger center to do their shopping. We believe that if we can get some of that interest back here through uh, immigration, through the wind energy, that's uh, actually a big hot topic now. Uh, We're looking at the seniors that are here. I mean, there's so much that's here, our forced industry here. We've got one of the most healthiest forests on the northern, well, for the island. Uh, Our fishery is still very strong here. There's a lot of viability here. The economic development officer is still in steps. We're waiting on the collaboration grants from the government to come out. Um, We've signed the agreements to actually hire someone. So as soon as we hear from the government, then we're going ahead with that when we'll be doing the advertising. We want this individual to come in and start looking at what we have here, start putting these ideas on paper and say, okay, this is something that we could really look at. This is something we could look at. Maybe we could be going this direction. Uh, Conch has got a school there in their area. Could that be a community center? Could that be an apartment building, maybe for immigration, for doctors? We've got several houses that are here that are owned by the government. Can they be upgraded? Could those be used to bring in individuals who could bring in some more industry for our area? So there's a lot of stuff that's there, a lot of dialogue going on, and hopefully with this EDO, we can even move further and go ahead. 
How do you deal with what will inevitably be a concern or a question asked of industry or business when they have an aging workforce? Because that's one of the key decision-making issues, isn't it? Is whether or not they have access to a trained, experienced, mm-hmm. and at a certain age uh, group for the workforce. What do you do? How do you address that issue? Because that's a that's going to be a big one. It is. It really is. Because we've like like a lot of the areas we've seen our young people move out. Um, we have to actually go to the experts on that one. And say we've got these houses that are sitting here empty. What about the land? I mean, Crown lands and every one of the communities. We do not have access to that land. That's something that has been discussed many, many times across many tables and across many years. There needs to be an easier mechanism opened up for communities to have access to these this granted land that's here, the crown land that's here. Communities should be able to say, okay, we need to identify this area so that we can open up some of the small houses, some of the apartment buildings, so that when this industry comes in, we can also get people who are coming in and building apartment buildings or building small houses. It, it works together. We have to work together with our counterparts in government, but they also have to work with us. And they have to see that Crown Lands is a large part of this. Our community here, we applied for a piece of property so that we were looking at trying to build a, a, a community center and a fire hall. Property that we were looking at, we were two years in the queue, only to be told at two years later on that we couldn't have the land because it actually belonged to somebody else. That was two years waiting, two years wasted, two years lost. There needs to be more open uh, ability for communities to access land within their own boundaries. What does access and proximity to health care services look like in your communities? Well, we actually have a center here in Roddington by Um We have a part-time doctor that takes virtual appointments, and we also have a nurse practitioner who is here. We've got, uh, Patty, we have got some of the most dedicated nursing and staff across anywhere. Uh, I'm sure you're aware that when we had the, the um, road washout and our community was essentially cut in two, we had nurses that, that traveled from the straight side, Plum Point area and along that area. The only way to get to work was these young, industrious young guys had got their dad's boat and they were ferrying people back and forth. Those nurses come from the other side, got aboard that boat only so that they could go to work and relieve their co-workers. So we've got a very dedicated staff here. We're working with LG Health and we're working with our, our MHA and stuff. We need a doctor here. We need a full-time doctor. Without having the doctors here, the stress goes to St. Anthony. St. Anthony's an hour and 40 minutes away. They feel the, stat, the stress from the healthcare center here. But we do have one. We've got that base and we've got dedicated people that are here. So we have that. So I, I, to me, that's still a positive. Uh, I'm not going to be looking at that as a negative. We're going to continue working with everyone, continue being a strong voice for our center here because we've got dedicated people here and they deserve our support. And it's actually Nurse Practitioner Week, as a matter of fact, uh, that you mentioned that healthcare profession. Uh, this is a little bit outside the conversation we're having, but and I can't remember if it was Roddington Arm or maybe it was in Hawke's Bay, but that whole wood pellet plant, uh, plant whatever happened to that? Well, actually, that kind of went very quiet. We've not heard anything on that one. And the individual actually, uh, from what I understand, never did cut one piece of wood. Uh, it's just completely gone out of the picture for that one. Yuck. The pellet plant that uh, Holston's owns is still sitting there, and we have a sawmill that's there. And we have the property that uh, Canada Bay also owns here. So we've got two very large areas that are fully developed, uh, uh, they're called ground sites because they've already got electricity. They already have their water. They already have all the instru- infrastructure there. So there's a huge potential there. So we have 
a lot of a potential in the area. Maybrook has got a wharf. Ingalia has got a wharf. Uh, Maybrook has got a wharf. They've got the fishing plant that's there. There is opportunity here, and we are here. And when I'm going to Patty, throw this off just a minute. When we're looking at the tourism ads that are going out across Newfoundland, across the world, they're showing everywhere. I'm hard place to see anything from this side of the northern peninsula we see the the, the straight side we see lance meadows which is beautiful wonderful and everybody should come see lance meadows at least three times a year because it's absolutely gorgeous but we also have a beautiful tapestry that's in conch we've got a museum here in Roddington by arm Lee has got one of the richest fishing history about it those are not being placed in those tourism ads you pick up a brochure in St. John's that tells you where to go look on the island, we're not there. And we need to be there because we have got some of the most beautiful things. Patty, this past summer we had YouTubers here that were going across the island. They come all the way to Rodney Byron, out to Ingalay. We were showcased on their, their YouTube channels. We'll be sharing them out there. We're here. People are learning us. We had plates here from Oklahoma. We had plates here from out of country. We had, People all over the world are coming to the Northern Peninsula, but they're finding us by accident. We're off on the beaten path, and we are the ideal place to come and see. I love the optimism and the collaboration and the positive spirit. I'll give you the final word about this morning, Mayor DeMoss, and I really appreciate you making time for the show. Thank you, Patty. One other thing I just wanted to throw out there, and this was in, in regards to the seniors' uh, advocate report that came out. One thing that government needs to look at as well is our tax bases are aging they are a lot of our seniors and and our seniors i mean we we as a community we have to go back and look at how are we going to stay sustainable how are we going to push forward and get forward and move these these communities forward and then we have to turn around and we have to tax a, a tax base that has got very limited income so i really hope that the government will take a look at that seniors uh, report and and look at what can be done for them and for our community because with our seniors there's so much there we were talking just last night about the things that our seniors have the accordion players the storytellers the the just the great amount of talent that they're having that's being lost because they're seniors and they're going into places that all needs to be captured and we need to be supporting our seniors just as much as we're supporting our young people and we're supporting our communities. Our seniors also need to be supported. I appreciate the time this morning, Mayor Jamas. I wish you nothing but the best in the, uh, with this joint council. Thank you so much, Patty. You have a wonderful day. You too. Take care. Bye-bye. Okay. Bye-bye. Here we go. That's Rodney Bidar, Bidar, Mayor Della Damas. That's pretty good. You get a bunch of community leaders with that spirit, that want to be sustainable and to be prosperous and to grow i mean that's you know when we talk about things like the Shorefast foundation and of course not everyone has a zeta cob but you just need community leaders that have a vision as opposed to shrug our shoulders throw our hands in the air and say there is no hope because if you work towards it at least you'll find out whether it be the hard way you'll find out whether or not you can actually make it happen and to be sustainable and to bring business to the community because they're right there's lots of opportunities that can be explored in routing to bite arm and Glee, mainbrook and conch and yes that economic development officer could be a very vital piece to try and figure out how the future looks if there's a bright future so good on uh, mayor demas and her partners up there on the great northern peninsula let's take a break don't go away welcome back to the show let's go to line number two taking more to the executive director at cod and l that's the coalition of persons with disabilities that's nancy reed good morning nancy you're on the air hi patty how are you doing today doing fine thanks how about you i'm doing well um but 
these days are really challenging for persons with disabilities in our province. Um, we're having challenging days in every uh, demographic, I'm sure, and we hear all of those stories so often. Uh, and that's also true for persons with disabilities. But I will say that yesterday I was, um, I guess, a little inspired and uh, and and motivated. Uh, we had a rally at Confederation Building yesterday, um, both a coalition supported by the community of persons with disabilities, and also with uh, the Association uh, for the Deaf in our province, around uh, particular needs being faced by the deaf community. And uh, and and I was encouraged because we really had a great community effort. People from the community, uh, those with uh, who identified with, with being deaf and those who did not really came together. And I think it's the start of us uh, really demonstrating our ability to come together as a community to stand up for the needs uh, and bring attention to the needs of people with disabilities in our province. So that was really encouraging. Yeah, and if people aren't exactly sure what is behind that, so we all remember back to the issue regarding Carter Churchill and not, not getting the type of education he requires, you know, no access to a full-time uh, interpreter. Then the story goes on even further. So there's about 600 people in the province that are deaf, that their sole for, form of communication, I guess with written as well, is American Sign Language. The fact of the matter is there's only five interpreters. So if you're a senior, for instance, and there's some 100 seniors uh, who are deaf and need an interpreter, what happens when and if you have an emergency, you have to go to the hospital and no interpreter available and the breakdown of communication there? Or you live in a congregate living setting like long-term care and don't have an interpreter. So you're basically living and sitting in silence, much like Carter Churchill was in his classroom. So it's a big deal. I've dealt with the association uh, many, many times over the years, but I don't think people have wrapped their mind around just the lack of services that are out there. I mean, even if there's five interpreters, it's hard to get one, it's hard to schedule one, and what happens if you have an unpredictable schedule? You might be just left in a lurch. Yeah, you've captured that really well, Patty. Thank you. I mean, that's exactly it. And well, oftentimes for people who are not associated with, you know, with, with, with deaf, with being deaf, with deaf culture and with the ASL, we have to realize that ASL is not, uh, you know, just signing English. It is a different language. That's and right. So a person who is an ASL user most often is somebody who learned ASL as their first language. So English is another language. We can't just expect somebody to be able to read English and comprehend it and understand it in that way because it is a second language for most users. So it's, you know, it's, it's complex and it's challenging. And today there are certainly technologies that can help, uh, you know, when we think about opportunities with iPads and, and voice and all those things. Um, but that's especially difficult for senior populations who didn't grow up with technology in the way some of our younger groups did. Um, you know, and as with many of our, uh, the challenges around technology for our senior populations. So, you know, there's a lot of um, there's a lot of areas that we still need help with in that space. But I was really encouraged yesterday that the community could come together in that way and be supportive of each other. I think that we're going to see a lot more of that in the the question will be, how do we address it? How do we tackle it? Because we can hold government to account and private companies to account, like some of the accessibility issues with Air Canada that's been in the news, and we can make sure that buildings are designed with universal design and they're retrofit to accommodate people with mobility issues or accessibility issues, but things like the number of interpreters. Where do we start? Because unless someone wants to be one or someone's incentivized or encouraged to become an ASL interpreter, I'm not even sure where we go. What do you think? Well, we now have accessibility legislation in this province, and accessibility legislation came in nearly two years ago now, and uh, that is designed, that it's the purpose of that is to enable all of our, um, all of our laws 
to become ones that are accessible, that, that make access possible for persons in the province. So when we think about uh, ASL and the, the opportunity for interpreters to be available, all of that should come with new regulations, new pieces of legislation, or amendments to existing legislation so that uh, people will genuinely have access. That's going to include interpreters. It's going to include modifications to buildings um, and all of the things, all of the barriers that people are facing right now, potentially will be addressed through accessibility legislation. And Patty, I hope to have a conversation with you, not today, but in the very near future, um, around some of the barriers that we're currently facing, especially within uh, recent amendments to the, or uh, amendments in the, to the Buildings Accessibility Act. And those, they have received uh, third reading just a couple of weeks ago. And, you know, the community has a number of challenges with that. Uh, and again, this is not the time for the call, but I'll, I'll ask your listeners to, to be aware that, uh, you know, we will we will be bringing some things forward from the community very soon about that. Uh, fair enough. And just very quickly before I let you go, there was a caller last week or the week before about private business and their awareness of uh, mobility issues in particular, like trying to get like a scooter to navigate the mall or the grocery store or what have you. What's your message to these companies? Because we could be talking somewhere in the neighborhood of 15 or 20% of your potential customers not getting the type of service they need and consequently may not be patrons of your business. What's your message? Well, yeah, I mean, businesses need to recognize that persons with disabilities actually make up about 25% of the population of this province. Factor in then the uh, persons who travel with persons with disabilities or families or loved ones, um, you know, that's a huge proportion of the population that you're potentially denying, uh, you know, denying access to your company. That's a huge, uh, huge impact on the bottom line, I would expect. So any opportunities to encourage and to increase opportunity for people to come in is really positively impacting your bottom line with hesitation. I appreciate the time, Nancy. Stay in touch. Patty, no, can I I bring something else to your attention? Sure. I have another reason for the call, and uh, and it's really important. Um, Nancy, if you wanted to have a, a bit more additional time, can I put you on hold? We'll come back after the news, and you can we'll talk about whatever you like. I appreciate it. Thanks, Patty. Okay, let's do that. Nancy Reid, the executive director of Cod and L, will rejoin her, and then you, right after the news. Your voice in Newfoundland and Labrador's biggest conversation. If you want to know what's happening in your province, tune in to Open Line every day. Have your say weekday morning starting at 9 a.m. on Open Line with Patty Daly on your VOCM. Welcome back. Let's rejoin the executive director of the Coalition of Persons with Disabilities on line two, Nancy Reid. Nancy, you're back on the air. Thanks, Patty, and thanks for letting me come back. Um, an issue has come to our office uh, over the last month or so, and uh, I want to, I guess, uh, paint a story uh, for your listeners. Uh, I'm, I'm concerned that what I'm about to tell you is something that may be happening to others, and we want to be able to uh, see, if, see if it is and see if we can help people uh, find a way through. Um, so if I could, I'll just share a brief story with you guys. Um, there's a gentleman in central Newfoundland who has contacted us, and he identifies as a person uh, with multiple disabilities, including physical mobility disability. Um, he is an individual who has been receiving uh, supports, I guess, goods and products through a workers' compensation in a Another province, okay, so not our local workplace NL, but with a different province's uh, workers' comp. And um, more than two years ago, actually two and a half years ago, he was approved for several pieces of equipment, uh, some of them very expensive pieces of equipment, to assist him in his daily living and help him maintain his independence. These particular devices were paid for by that uh, workers' compensation program from another province when they were ordered two and a half years ago. And to date, he has not yet received the devices. 
you know, the gentleman um, has on many occasions gone to the local supplier, uh, made numerous phone calls. Uh, he went as far as getting an advocate from a local uh, support agency, spoke with his MHA, gone to the, you know, the, the funding group with the workers' comp uh, space, and nobody has been able to figure out why he's not receiving these materials, and nobody really went through with anything. Uh, he contacted us a couple of months ago. And while we don't do individual advocacy, uh, typically, this was a story that, you know, we, we just kind of stuck on to because we wanted to see if it was happening with one person or if it was something that would, would be more systemic and, and happening to others. So we followed through um, and have made similar calls to the gentleman. We have spoken with the business involved, um, and they told us initially that there was a lack. You know, they had some um, supply issues. And, of course, in COVID, we know that there were supply issues. However, uh, it's been two and a half years. And I'll say that um, from the coalition perspective, uh, over last year, we actually supplied nearly $300,000 worth of similar types of devices to folks, and we were able to source them within a few months. So the two-and-a-half-year span to actually uh, provide some of these, and I'm not going to say they're typical um, piece of equipment, but certainly piece of equipment that are not unusual to our community. Uh, it seems like a really long time. So the business is saying now that they have some of the supplies, most of them in fact, uh, and they had promised to deliver them to the gentleman two weeks ago. He's still waiting. Uh, I checked with him as, a, as recently as this morning, and he is still waiting. And he is still trying to uh, reach that company, and they're not responding. They're not responding to us any longer, uh, and uh, nor to the MHA, as best I understand. We've been talking to, to him as well. Is the supplier still in business? The supplier is still in business. Uh, the phone still rings. The door is open. Uh, the gentleman tells me that he actually went to the location yesterday to make an inquiry, went into the door in through the business, and the door was open, but nobody answered his call. And he was in the business itself. Strange uh, set of circumstances, given the fact that this would be uh, not an issue of money because the coverage is in place. So they're just turning a blind eye to actual revenue? Yeah, yeah well, uh, you know, they've been paid. They have been paid. Oh, the, the payment's not. already been made. What type the of supplies are we made. talking about, Nancy? Uh, medical type supplies, uh, okay. to my understanding, and I don't, and I, I mean, I won't give away details, but uh, like a hydraulic lift bed, uh, you know, pieces of equipment that are, you know, in the thousands of dollars sometimes. Wow. And uh, but again, certain things that, you know, are not uncommon to the community that I'm, you know, that I'm representing, and uh, and and we know I've worked with a number of suppliers in the St. John's area over the last months, and we've had no problem uh, getting similar types of, of piece of equipment. So, and Patty, listen, and where we are right now in our work with it, the company that made the payments, they're in the process of doing what they need to do to, you know, to to receive, to, uh, to be refunded. And I leave that with them. They're competent and capable of doing that. Um, and that's their responsibility, and, and I'm okay with that. However, my problem is, and, and, I, and I will say that the gentleman at the center of the story will be receiving his, his products. Uh, they're being ordered through another uh, company in our province, and, and I, I, I feel very confident that he'll be getting them in the next couple of weeks. However, um, the problem that I'm facing or I'm wondering about from a systemic advocacy perspective is that if an individual in a vulnerable state in our province could face this kind of a barrier and could, be, uh, could have this experience, 
are there others in our province that are facing, you know, facing similar situations? Are others having this experience and don't know where to turn? The gentleman in this case, I mean, is really exhausted from the effort of trying to to, to, to get what, what, he, what he's owed and uh, really facing barrier after barrier in that process. We're thinking about vulnerable populations, and if a person feels that they are you know, facing something similar to this, I just encourage them to call us. Um, I don't know what, what we can do except to, uh, I guess, follow through similarly to what we had done for this gentleman, but we really want to know if there's a systemic issue at play here, um, and, and it's really important for us. So if I could just leave a phone number and an email uh, in case any callers have a similar experience, I'd really appreciate that. For sure. Uh, so the number the number to reach us at at the coalition is 709-722-7011, 722-7011. And the best email would be info at codnl.ca, I-N-F-O at C-O-D-N-L.ca. You would imagine if this company can't follow through after receiving payment in full, maybe they can be off of the uh, preferred vendors list. Well, you know, it's it, it's really challenging for me, Patty. You know, we're talking about uh, at least one individual who um, I know that the person is available. Uh, you know, he very rarely leaves his home, and so one of the con- one of the comments made by the company is that they called and he, you know, he didn't he didn't return the call. He hardly ever leaves his home, and when he does, he does have a cell phone and he uses it. Uh, we've called him on numerous occasions, different times of the day, and he's always answered. And uh, you know, and he's been trying to access this equipment for two and a half years. Um, so I think there's more at play here. I don't know what that is. And again, I'm leaving the um, we've even contacted the Better, Better Business Bureau in this space. It, it took a lot of work for us to uh, to make the phone calls and really get to the bottom of where we are. Um, I just want to make sure that others are not falling through the cracks, and that uh, you know people need people need to be heard. We, you know, we talked about the piece with ASL and the need for communication. Um, people with various different types of barriers also have barriers to being able to access the services that they need, and this is no no different from that. This particular instance is with a private vendor for sure, um, but we we need to know if it's something that's happening more broadly. I appreciate the time and the concern, Nancy. Keep in touch. Thank you so much, Patty. You're welcome. You too. Bye-bye. Nancy Reed, the Executive Director at Cotta. Now, let's take a break. Sheila's there to tell us about an emergency room experience, and then we'll speak with you. Don't go away. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number three. Good morning, Sheila Lee. You're on the air. Yes. Good morning, Patty. Good morning. How are you? I'm not doing doing okay, boy, you know. I'm making a little bit of progress. It's It's a long road ahead, I think, but I'm grateful. I'm grateful to where I am now, to be honest with you. Anyway, honey, I have a couple of things I wanted to mention to you today. Uh, I wanted to talk about the emergency. Um, I know there's all kinds of people calling in with all the different problems with the emergency department. And I, I know some of the reasons for it, of course, is, uh, is they just don't have enough people there, especially doctors. And uh, there's a big demand by people. And there's nowhere, nowhere else for those people to go, which means that if, if it's after hours, as far as I know, I might be wrong, but I think for the most part, if it's after hours, Hours, but suppose you have a, a cold versus a heart, having a heart attack, everybody flocks to emergency. So I brought my, my very ill cousin there uh, over two weeks ago, three weeks ago now. And um, she came out from St. Chats in, in a two and a half hour rough, 
ride in an ambulance and uh, she went to St. Clair's, her sister went with her and they spent, uh, well after the first hour or so, they did take her in, take her blood work and take uh, some, do chest x-rays and that kind of stuff. And then they asked her to go out and the doctor will get back to her when you read the results. So this is where the problem comes in. So she, she waited She waited there for, I think it was something like six or seven hours after that. And, of course, I was in correspondence. I happened to be in town, and I was in correspondence with her and her sister. And she's a very, very sick woman. In fact, she's after after passing away now. Less than, less, a little over a week later, she passed away. So they'll give you an idea how sick she was. So anyway, I, I went down, and I said, okay, uh, you know, this woman's going to probably collapse on the floor and die here. So I said, we're, go- we're leaving here. So I went over to the girl at the wicket, and I said, honey, I said, we're leaving here. I said, this lady can't stand this any longer. And she said, oh, she had to stay, she said, because she said the doctor has to read a report. And I said, yeah. I said, for how long will that take now? I said, she's six hours here already now waiting. How much longer? Oh, I can't tell you that, she said. I said, okay. I said, will you do something for me, honey? I said, we'll make, we make this much easier, not just for her, but for everybody here. I said, would you write down my, my contact information? I said, I'm taking her now to a hotel. I said, she's got to lie down somewhere. She's so sick. And she's not going back to St. Chats in the condition she is. I said, would you write down my contact information and ask the doctor whenever he reads the results and has something to tell us to give us a call. And then we can determine that she need to be hospitalized. Is there something he can prescribe over, over the phone for her or whatever? Oh, no, she said, we can't do that. And I said, what do you mean you can't do that? And she said, oh, no, she said, he's going to have to contact her doctor. I said, what doctor? I said, we're out here now in St. John's. I said, you know, and I said, she's she's very, very sick, and I'm sure she's going to need probably hospitalization. So I said, wouldn't this be much easier for everybody? Oh, no, no, she said, I can't do that. Well, I said, I'm going to ask you now, darling, please. I said, just take down my number and contact information. I said, and ask the doctor if he could do that for I said, well, if he decides not to do it for us, well, I said, that's, that's another thing. But would you be kind not to do that much for me? Oh, no, she said, we can't do that. So I took him, I took her and her sister, and we left, and we went to a hotel for the night. And, Patty, I don't know what I would have done with that poor darling woman. She couldn't go back to St. Chad's. Only for I was lucky enough to connect with her her specialist, and I guess it's one in a million chances that her darling specialist couldn't fit her in that day. But but she didn't even have clinic the next day. But she said, "I'll come out of my when I come out of my surgery, I'll see her." And of course, at, at, later in the afternoon, she saw her. And of course, after she saw her, and she came into the room and she said, "Ma," she said, "You left the emergency." because the results was on this then. And I said, yes, we did. She said, you shouldn't have done that. I said, yes, doctor, we should. I said, this lady, I said, would you want her to die there, right there in that emergency? I said, we had no other choice. And I told her what I had asked for the doctor to do. And she said, well, you know, they could have done that, really, she said. So anyway, of course, that wonderful doctor then got on the ball and, you know, in a matter of, in a matter of probably a couple of hours, she was, she had a baby and she was after having a cat scan. So she really say, you know, she saved a lot of extra grief for this very sick woman because I just couldn't take her home. So I just wanted to throw that other day out there and I hope Minister Osborne is listening. I understand about the, you know, the crowding at the emergencies and I'm sure everybody is trying their best. I'm not criticising anybody. 
I thought that the girl at the reception probably could have been a little kinder, but I'm sure she's stressed too with all the demands on her. But all I'm asking him to do is consider this one. There might have been about... 90% of who was there probably could have went on home and when the results came out of what they had done, the doctor could have called them and made a decision from there what they should do. And that would make it so much easier, physically in particular, and mentally on those people. Some of them were very, very sick, like my, my dear cousin. So I wanted to throw that suggestion out there and if, if they could buy into that one and make it happen, I think it would really help with, the, with what's going on in the emergency. I don't know what the hesitancy would be in trying to allow people to leave that setting to clear up some space and to share any information via the phone like my family doctor if I go get some blood work done and there's nothing really to worry about or I don't need to be summoned back to our office to talk about next steps they simply call me and say everything turned out okay fine right. so right. that seems like to be pretty fundamental this is probably a workload issue though as well isn't it Sheila so with the new pilot program for physicians assistants who can do things like this to take some administrative work or administrative type work off of the doctor's shoulder so they can do what they do but we can make it easier for uh, people like your cousin. I don't know why this is as complicated as they make it out to be. Well, actually, you know, that doctor, if she had waited there, maybe for God knows how many more hours, that doctor would eventually have read it and he would have called her in and told her what the results were. Okay, so she left. We had to take her. So what was the difference? Well, yeah. I was taking up no more of his time. Instead of calling her in, he could just pick up the phone and use the number I left and tell us what the situation is. This is what I'm trying to say. It's not going to cause any extra uh, work for the, for that doctor who read that those results. Fair enough. You understand me? Yep. Okay, so that's one thing. The second thing I wanted to talk about is uh, is the uh, the situation with those doctors in Lewisport. Like, as you probably know, I, I was a teacher. I'm a retired teacher. And uh, and I, I'm listening, you know, and I'm saying to myself, you know, uh, my God, you know, this is apparently being going on for two years. And then it finally became to what you call a, a very serious situation to the point that this girl probably could have been really seriously injured. Not mentioning the mental the mental injuries that had been inflicted over those over those two years. Now, I I don't know, Patty. Your wife, your wife is a principal, so she might be able to address this better than me. But sometimes I think there's just a bit of common sense needs to be used. I mean, if there's if there's people in the in the school, uh, and it's usually only a small percentage of them, and for some reason or other, you know, doesn't necessarily have to be because you're a different colour. I mean, you saw early in the year this boy that this 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 in St John's where this fellow just went in in the classroom and just went down to him for no reason whatsoever and abused them, the poor child, and which was so traumatic. Um, I'm wondering, is, is, shouldn't there be something going on between the justice system and the school? Because <clears throat> as far as I'm concerned, yeah, and this, I listened to the minister on yesterday about, you know, how they have to try to, you know, educate the people about this importance of uh, different different uh, ethnic groups or whatever in your province and be, be, be uh, what's the word, be sort of conscious of that and be kind and that kind of stuff. But there's, there is, for whatever reason, in our school, and I guess those people People are very disturbed themselves, but you can preach all these little cows come home, but I don't know if it's going to make much of a difference. I really think that it should be some kind of a, a spelled out process that, that, that if this is going on for two years, 
after so long, I, I would suspect there was some suspensions, but after so long, I think there should be a permanent one. I think this person should not be in that regular school system. It, well, I'm sorry, but you may have to teach your child at home or they may have to go somewhere else, but they can't come back here. There's a lot of disruption going on and good kids in classrooms, they can't learn because of this kind of stuff happening, you know. And, I mean, the province now is so desperate for doctors and here's two doctors in Lewisport is trying to decide what they should do. And um, I don't know. I listened to the mayor on too uh, the night and I wasn't sure. I wasn't sure what my response would be. I kind of felt there was an underlying, uh, uh, underlying thing happening there that I can't put my finger on, but I hope I'm wrong. But um, if we don't cap and, and the school can only act on what they're allowed to do, so if, the, if, if legislation is not there by, by our justice system, this is going to continue and continue and continue. And I think that's sad. I think it's very sad because you're really, you're really depriving a lot of children who really want to learn, who really want to excel. You're depriving them of what, what they could do because of this. But this darling child at 14 years old, now maybe there's not a side to this that we need to hear. But Who knows, right? We don't have enough detail. We have the assertions and allegations. And if it resulted in a crime being, or uh, pardon me, a charge being laid, then obviously it's serious beyond just so-called bullying. Yeah. And we're probably never going to know every single thing here, but we have the issues regarding the privacy of a minor. But more information will inevitably leak out as the rumor mill ramps up. I've already heard some names and things, and I'm not going to give that much in the way of any attention because I don't know if it's real or true or accurate. Right. So we'll see but we do need better policies beyond empathy and understanding oh and rhetoric we need to do we better do. like a darling minister i know she's new and i'm sure she's a sweetheart but her response last night on the news i thought, said to myself oh honey you got this got this, you got to realize much more is needed here if we're going to do try to really seriously address what's going on in in schools now the last thing i want very to quickly because i got to get to the news sheila okay. i listened to that mayor talking before i came yep. on right wonderful woman and she mentioned about collaboration. Well, right now here in our area, even though I'm not part of the council anymore, through collaboration, we're having a, 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 like a nice swimming pool built in St. Mary's, you know. And so there's an example of councils coming together through collaboration. We have a fire department through collaboration. So there's lots of possibilities. And this economic development offers, I think, is a great idea. And I think more councils should be doing it. Anyway, Darlene, thank you for, ta- for taking a few minutes to listen to me. I appreciate your time. Be well, Sheila. Stay in thank touch. Thank you. And you too. Okay. Okay, okay bye right, bye. Bye bye. All right, let's take a break for the news. When we come back, uh, the mayor of Whitburn is uh, Hilda Whalen. She wants to talk about an issue regarding practice ready assessments, and that's regarding the licensing of doctors in the province. Levi wants to talk about some crime scene related matter, the uh, poppy campaign results, and then, of course, it's the kettle campaign season with the Salvation Army, that and whatever else is on your mind. Don't go away. Get lost in the music of legendary artists like Elton John, The Beatles, and more. Join Claudette Barnes every Sunday from 12 to 1 p.m. and relive fond memories through the power of music with Sunday Melodies on your VOCM. Welcome back. Let's go to line number one. Say good morning to the mayor of the town of Whitburn. That's Hilda Whalen. Good morning, Mayor Whalen. You're on the air. Happy Thursday. Happy Thursday to you. Thank you for taking my call. Uh, This petition that uh, I've... uh, for the to the university, it's for practice ready assessment seats, and to give your listeners a, a understanding of the PRA, it is a 12 week course that they have to complete 
to make sure that they are competent in all of the areas that they practice. When they go to the College of Physicians and Surgeons, 90% of what they are now looking at are students ready, not doctors that need practice-ready assessment. The problem is they, like I had one person, she had uh, July 1st, a professional license, and they told her to, that she has to have PRA. She couldn't She couldn't find a PRA. She couldn't get in. Her, her license runs out in January 1st, and the next Tenedos, uh, uh course is in January. And uh, I think this is not good enough. Uh, the College of Physicians and Surgeons, they... Uh, they don't contact PRA. They have they have nothing to do with them. And I I told Jamie Osmond, the CEO myself, why not? Don't they go through that and come back to you to licensing? I said, isn't that all a part of the licensing process? Let me just give people a little bit more detail as to what we're talking about. Yeah. And this is directly from the Medical Council of Canada. It says, yeah. the National Assessment Collaboration Practice Ready Assessment Programs are offered in nine provinces across Canada as a route to license for licensure for international medical graduates who have yeah. already completed the residency and practice independently abroad. goes on yeah. to say, these programs offer clinical field assessment over a period of 12 weeks. After completion, successful candidates must complete a return of service in a rural area of the province of assessment. Yes. And this is this is the problem. We don't have... We do have IMGs who are applying. There are a lot of applications right now in the queue that uh, are going to need these seats. And uh, the tenant of time is January, and I don't think it's good enough. I think that they should have them every every couple of months. Uh, I mean, they could say, oh, well, the cost. Well, we all know how much money they got to throw away in there. Plus, we gave them $360 million this year. And I think if it's, if it's not, if it's a case they don't have the seats, can't offer them often enough, they can have it set up outside because some provinces has this practice-ready assessment outside of the university, not controlled by the university. Right. So I, 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 it's a big part of the licensing. It's something that we need. And as I said before, uh, when I sent the letter to them originally asking them to provide these seats, I told them that they should feel obligated with the billions that we but in there, over the last 40 years, they should have stepped up to the plate and offered us as many seats as we needed. Now, of course, you mentioned 360 million. Mun's Med School has a standalone budget from Mun proper. Uh, I think we could probably get the dean on. We've had her on in the past, so maybe it's time to check back in because this is one of the biggest stories in the country is the number of doctors, family doctors and otherwise. So we'll see if we can't revisit a conversation with the, with the dean of medicine. Yes, because right now uh, there are a lot of uh, IMGs out there. We all know that. Some of them are practicing, actually, in provinces, right? And uh, they have to have this PRA because and we, we have to attach to the IMGs. We are not going to get the, uh, the, the doctors that we need from other provinces. Uh, and it's, so we shouldn't, as we said, you know, don't be 
stealing our doctors. And, and rightly so, we don't want anybody to steal what we got, as little as we got anyway. But having said that, you know, the provinces, I know the other provinces have it outside, but we can't, we can't have a people here waiting for three, six months or so for a PRA because what is going to happen is Nova Scotia has eyes all over the place. And, oh, they got the, they got a dozen down there though, waiting for PRA. They already got their background checks and provisional license. Ask them to come here and say thank you very much, Newfoundland. So we don't want our doctors to leave, the ones that are provisionally licensed, but we do want from the university. I don't care mm-hmm. if, it, if it costs, then you put the money down or we'll claw back. Tell the government, claw back 50 or 100 million. Do whatever you got to do to get it done and get it outside. Because I called in there and I had uh, uh, actually Andrew Pretty. I said, Andrew, I got a job for you. Go find ready practice assessment in the university. He said, Hilda, he said, I asked her if there was one. She didn't know. He asked her if there okay. was one. He didn't know. He didn't know the future. She said, don't you accept the application? She said, yes, but she didn't know. She'd have to get back to him. And then after that, he, she wouldn't answer the, voice, answer the call. So I can only imagine what the doctors are going through. And you got to mean, they are new people here. They are, they are Canadian doctors. They are Canadian citizens. They're not they're not having to immigrate here, although we have a lot of foreign doctors. And, and basically, our our province has almost been run by foreign doctors. That's all I've seen. I know when I've been in Whitburn, and uh, I know that's the same, the same case across the province. I will follow up. So there's an interim dean of the School of Medicine at Monash, Dr. Dolores McKean. She's formerly a professor of anesthesia. We'll see if we can't make time with the good doctor to, uh, to talk about this and a few other issues that, of course, we need to talk about with Mons Medical School. I appreciate you sending along the petition this morning, uh, Hilda. Or pardon me, Mary yeah. Whalen. Well, thank you much. My pleasure. Take good care. Bye. All right, bye-bye. Dave, let's see if we can uh, get the dean on. Might be a bit of a reach, but let's try. Let's go to line number five and say good morning to Salvation Army Major Jamie Locke. Good morning, Major. You're on the air. Hi, good afternoon. Good day good to you, morning, sir. I should say. <laughs> Still morning. Yeah, the Salvation Army is approaching Christmas, as we all are, and we're gearing up to kick off the uh, kettle campaign uh, this evening at the Murray premises here in St. John's. Uh, at 6 o'clock p.m. Uh, we wanted to spread the word and invite people to come and join us. Uh, we're certainly looking forward to uh, celebrating everything that is Christmas, but of course we have in front of us the reality that there are many people who are uh, doing without and going without and could use um, some support this holiday season. And you don't have to have cash on you. The Salvation Army has modernized where you can use your credit card or your debit card to make a donation through that uh, medium as well. Does the kettle campaign money get earmarked for specific purposes or just in the general coffers at the Salvation Army for responding to things, you know, that come up and pop up out of the blue? When you donate to a Salvation Army Christmas kettle, you're giving to your local community. Um, And so when you make a donation, those funds support the Salvation Army's work and programs all throughout the year. Um, Programs such as the feeding program that we would operate at the Chesapeake Center of Hope here in St. John's, Mm -hmm. uh, as well as, uh, you know, the regular operations of that facility, which include sheltering and uh, life skill development programs. 
yeah, so when you donate to the Salvation Army Christmas Kettle Campaign, you're helping us ensure that our operations are uh, able to be sustained all throughout the year. What was the uh, fundraising total last year? The total last year was just over 1.2 million uh, for the kettle campaign, and that's of course all across Newfoundland and Labrador. The totals, the funds collected were were uh, totaled, and then we share that number out. So we're hoping that we would at least see uh, generosity at that level again this year. The reality is, and I've just come from the Center of Hope here in St. John's. And the staff, the volunteers are telling me that they are seeing new people every day coming and seeking help. Uh, Before the pandemic, uh, we would uh, give out approximately 200 hot meals a week at the Center of Hope. Um, Today, right now, they are preparing for a thousand meals uh, to be distributed by the end of this week. The need is real. The numbers are growing. We all hear the stories. We all read the news stories that, you know, paint individual pictures and the issues regarding food bank usage, emergency shelters, and everything else. So we know people are also struggling who are, you know, working, working poor, middle class. But if you can indeed make a donation when you come across the Salvation Army Kettle, you'll be doing a great service to the community. Uh, Anything else this morning, Major, before we take a break? No, um, we're just so very thankful for the opportunity to get the word out that the Kettle Campaign has been uh, started. It's going to be kicked off this evening here at the Murray Premises. Everyone's welcome to join us. And when you see a Salvation Army Kettle out in the malls and in the grocery stores, uh, please consider making a donation knowing that you are impacting and changing lives right there in your own community. Appreciate this, and have a great Kettle Campaign season, Major. Thank you, and uh, I guess it's a little early, but Merry Christmas. And the very same to you. Thank you. Take care. Bye-bye. Salvation Army Major Jamie Locke. Final break of the morning. When we come back, Levi wants to talk about a crime scene-related matter. Then we're going to talk about the uh, poppy campaign and veterans. Don't go away. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number four. Good morning, Cy. You're on the air. Morning, Patty. Morning to you. Welcome to the show. Beautiful, crisp November morning here in uh, Clarenville. Same here. Nice and calm. I don't mind the temperature as long as the wind is not blowing a gale. morning uh, I want to talk about one is our one is good and one not good uh, the good one is we uh, just concluded our poppy campaign here in Clarenville and a big thank you to everybody who donated around Clarenville and particularly uh, Walmart who allowed us to go in there and set up our poppy table have two shifts a day we did very very well there as a matter of fact uh, the totals are not in but we're a little under 22,000 which is absolutely phenomenal bearing in mind how tough things are, prices gone through the roof, etc. Obviously, the, um, the most important part of that Poppy Trust Fund is supporting veterans and, um, and their spouses, along with other projects. Um, the other one I want to talk about, Patty, I don't know how good your memory is. It's probably pretty good. A couple of years ago, I was listening to your show, and this fellow called in from, I think, Ottawa, talking about a hero, a young man in Afghanistan by the name of Jess La, Roche- La Rochelle. Yeah, I remember the call. Remember that? Yeah. Hey, I believe Mr. La Rochelle has passed away, hasn't he? Uh, you are right on the ball. As a matter of fact, I'm looking now at the, the Legion magazine, which we get, I don't know, five or six times a year. He was only 40 years old. He was found in his workshop by his brother. 
And uh, he basically said there wasn't anything we could do for Jess, and you know what that means. He suffered really bad PTSD as a lot of uh, physical injuries as well. But there's a two-page um, article in, in the magazine. I'm just going to hit the high points, if that's okay. Go right ahead. Um, I said on October 14, 2006, La Rochelle had no sooner taken up his position when he was hit by a rocket, throwing back several meters. The concussion of the blast in him knocked him out, broke his back, fractured two vertebrae in his neck, blown out his right eardrum and detached his right retina. His spinal cord was intact and he was peppered by shrapnel. It went on to say that he, he got back to his post, fired 700 machine gun rounds at the enemy, and I guess when the, when the dust settled and the smoke settled, uh, the ground was littered with enemy dead. So it went on and on and on yeah. to talk about it. The story goes that he single-handedly held off some 40 Taliban soldiers. Exactly. Yeah. Correct. Now, the, the crux of the whole matter, it said... Um, Efforts to have La Rochelle Award upgraded to the first-ever Canadian VC spearheaded by an adversary group, Valor in the Presence of the Enemy, backed by 15,000 named petition along with endorsements from three living VC recipients, failed on technical grounds. Now, I don't know what this man, boy, he was 22, had to do to be awarded a VC, but that's beyond me. Um, and finally, they, they go on and talk just... It said nearly 100 Canadians, among 1,353 original VCs awarded across the British Empire in the 1990s, when Australia, followed by Canada and New Zealand, created their own. Canada is the only one of the three that has not awarded one. Unbelievable. It is. It's a very strange story, and I do remember the call from a fellow soldier talking about uh, Private La Rochelle. So he was awarded the second highest citation for bravery in combat. It's called the Star of Military Valor, but nobody, including La Rochelle, whose feat of bravery and courage you would imagine qualifies him for the Canadian Victoria Cross, but for some unknown technical bizarre reason, he wasn't awarded it, and now too late. Oh, well, I guess it could be awarded posthumously, but that's not the same. Uh, yeah, yeah. It makes you wonder what these... Um military decision makers like what are they, I, I don't know it's really disgusting what it is as far as I'm concerned anyway it was really sad to read that article fine looking young man man oh man alright sir that's it appreciate the time Sai thanks for this yeah. bye. take care bye bye oh boy uh, let's go to line number two good morning Levi you're on the air hello how are you doing okay sir before we run out of time what's on your mind well, the concern, uh, I happen to be passing up by uh, the, 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 that garden place, uh, by the gathering place, uh, that homeless shelter. And I noticed on uh, the steps, like uh, one of the platforms, uh, there's a body drawn outline, as you would see in a crime scene. I know there's a first name there, and then there's other slanderous comments, but it looks like, as in, as most interpret, as a death threat. Now, you got kids and adults going with their kids, and they're seeing this. And we're living in an area of the city where there's, what, four or five murders that have happened? And here you go by seeing people that are it's painted on, and it, it, it looks almost like a childish, but no child hanging in that area. And I know similar art, um, supplies are contained within the, the that homeless shelter itself. But can you imagine walking with your child if your name was the first name as on the pavement, on the pavement line is drying, what they would be going through the kids' heads. I wonder who put it there. Where did that come well, from? I wonder. 
I know it's been there at least a couple of days and no one's removed it, no one's questioned it and it puts an unnerving feeling, you know, how brazen people are getting, how disregard they have for the locals that probably share the first name of the children, uh, traumatizing people, realizing, figuring something's common and they got to be extra careful, afraid, putting terror in people. And it's very concerning that is that low people would go uh, not having not just trying to get at someone but to make other people fear as well, afraid to go around there, not knowing if something is going to happen, not letting their kids going out, or if they share the same name, are they directing at me as they're probably thinking as his name is on the thing? It's very unnerving, very dissettling, and being right next to that shelter where there's a lot of issues, and I mean, you go along that garden area, you can see needles thrown everywhere. I mean, they're among the bushes, and this is just an ongoing problem. Yeah, I actually have a tour of the gathering place coming up next Tuesday, so I'll have an opportunity to see this up close and personal, find out a bit more about it, and what's being done about it as well. Yeah, well, I wouldn't doubt that now with this uh, talk, they'll probably have it removed. It's a sad thing, but I made sure to take screenshots and that uh, maybe a social media thing is a better thing to public awareness, be on guard. I mean, uh, because it's not okay to threaten anyone, period. But it's definitely using the vague with just the first name. That makes people scared and paranoid because a lot of people have the same name, first name. And it's very traumatizing to kids to see this. Some of these people are, are immigrants and see these kind of violence. And this is going through it. And that's sad it's... that these people that do this know this and they don't care. I'll follow up on it, but I appreciate your time this morning, Levi. You've had the last word. Well, thank you very much, my good man. I just figure, you know, everybody deserves to be safe and no one should be traumatized seeing such a thing. You know, it's sad. You know, it's sad to see what the city's come to. And and uh, I know law enforcement does the best they can. Uh, and the people try to save the best they can. They can't be ever at once. But it's sad. And in this circumstance, it's also strange. I appreciate the time, sir. Be well. You take care. Stay safe. And so does everyone else, my good man. Bye, Levi. All right, there we go. Levi had the last word, but we will indeed pick up this conversation again tomorrow morning right here on VOCM and Big Land FM's Open Line. On behalf of the producer, David Williams, I'm your host, Patty Daly. Have yourself a safe, fun, happy day. We'll talk in the morning. Bye-bye.